0: The Dudes of Kung Fu podcast is brought to you by Wing Chun Illustrated magazine. Wing Chun Illustrated is the premier publication for Wing Chun. Published six times a year, Wing Chun Illustrated is a perfect bound, full color, glossy publication. Each 60-page issue comes packed with in-depth content and feature stories by and about the world's greatest exponents of Wing Chun, regardless of lineage or style. Wing Chun Illustrated has featured people like Imin Bostepe, Philip Bayer, Yip Chun, Gary Lam, Donald Mack, Samuel Kwok, David Peterson, Chan Chi Man, Mark Phillips, Wan Kam Leung, Sam Lau, Robert Chu, Sifu Sergio, Victor Kan, and many, many more. There are two ways you can enjoy this fantastic publication. Go to wingchunillustrated.com and order the magazine as a print-on-demand. The print quality is simply amazing. Or download the Magster app and get a subscription. That's Magzter, M-A-G-Z-T-E-R. This way, when the new issue hits the stands, you'll automatically receive it as a download onto your smart device for offline reading. In fact, with your new Magzter account, you can access the magazine on multiple devices, iOS, Android, Kindle Fire, and web browser. To make the deal even sweeter, listeners to the Dudes of Kung Fu Podcast can use coupon codes DUDES to get a six-month complimentary digital subscription. That coupon code is DUDES. Type in all capital letters. For that, you got to go to magster.com, that's M A G Z T E R.com, to register. Add the six month subscription to the cart and apply the coupon code at checkout. The Dudes of Kung Fu Love, Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. Welcome to the first Dudes of Kung Fu Ask Me Anything episode with the Kung Fu Genius. So Ask Me Anything episodes are new to the podcast. Uh, Sean and I plan on doing these, at least in our tentative plan, once a month. One time I will do one, one time Sean will do one, and this will be essentially special content for the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast listeners. Uh, The first one, we decided that I would do it, test the waters, and if it's an epic failure, we will probably not do it again. As most of you know who are listening to this podcast uh, about a week or so ago, we posted on the Dudes of Kung Fu page to write in your questions, uh, anything you want to ask me to answer essentially on a um, one-to-one basis. That way we can address a lot of the questions that people have. Um, Many people uh, love the podcast, but we're saying that they wish we had a chance to answer more of the viewer questions a little bit more directly. And doing an Ask Me Anything episode is probably the easiest way to do it. Now, first, we're going to do it where it's just one episode where you can ask me anything. And then we'll do a second episode where it's just Sean. And if the format works good, of course, we might also do uh, some where it's the both of us, depending on the questions. But a lot of people seem to have questions that are specific to either Sean or to me so we figured we would try this format out first so I'm looking very much forward to hearing Sean's ask me anything Uh, the response to this one was overwhelming we put the post on Facebook we also put a post on Instagram and we got so many questions I don't think I can reasonably answer all of them in one AMA so if you ask the question and I didn't get a chance to get to it today we will definitely put it in the lineup for future AMAs, which, as I said, we hope to do pretty regularly. So, as a number of you also know, we set up a Patreon account, which allows you guys to support the podcast directly. We uh, are not uh, really making tons of money off of doing this podcast, as that was never the goal, but uh, both Sean and I have extremely busy lives, and uh, we do have to put in a little bit of our own money into this podcast. So if we could get those listeners who really appreciate the content we're putting out there to support a little bit, uh, we're more than happy to give you guys special deals and give you guys special benefits. So for those of you who haven't seen it yet, you can go to the thedudesofkungfu.com and go to the page for support. When you go there, you'll see a number of ways you can support us. A number of those ways are absolutely free. It's not necessary to fork over your wallet just to listen to this. However, if you wanna get a couple extra goodies, we uh, suggest that you go to the Patreon page and you guys can support the podcast for as little as $2 a month, which is really nothing. That's not even a cup of coffee in New York City. And uh, For that, you will already get some really fantastic benefits. For $5 a month, you would get the podcast three days before it regularly comes out. The new schedule is that every podcast that comes out comes out on Thursday, so supporters of the podcast at the $5 level would get that podcast by about Monday or Tuesday. In addition to that, um, this first AMA is absolutely free. So we're definitely doing the drug dealer thing here where your first hit is free, folks. Um, but after that, um, we're going to have the AMAs exclusively for supporters of the podcast. And that's even for those of you who support us at the lowest level. Um, but even just 2 $3 a month or whatever, will give you the AMA. That way we can uh, really make sure that we uh, cover our costs for putting out this podcast. So in addition to that, if you look at the Patreon page, we have a number of different levels, you know, uh, that you can get an autographed, uh, photo from the dudes um, you can get you know uh, other other prizes and gifts and things like that. and the great thing with patreon is that whatever level of donation you decide to go for, you will get all the benefits that uh, go to the lower levels as well. so it, it, it works that way which is really fantastic. Um, we have one level of support on the patreon account, which uh, allows you to do a monthly hangout with the dudes. So how that would basically work is uh, we would do it either before or after the recording of the podcast. We're going to have a set time every month where we do it. Uh, I think Sean and I have decided to do it, I think, around the second Friday of every month. It's a 45-minute hangout through Google, so you'll actually see us by video, and you'll essentially get the chance to interact with us uh, directly. So it's kind of like a private podcast for all of our supporters. So, and that'll be for everybody who's supporting us at that level as well. So if you get a chance, go to dudesofkungfu.com slash support, or just go to the page and click on support. And you'll have the link there for the Patreon page where you can find out all sorts of ways to support us and get really awesome benefits, including having a chance to chat with us live every month. Uh, and, uh, as most of you guys know, Wing Chun Illustrated is our main supporter, a uh, main sponsor of the podcast. Um, for those of you who are, um, Wing Chun fans, uh, which should be a fair amount of you, all right? We don't assume you guys are just Jeet Kune Do guys. And if you are Jeet Kune Do guys, you should probably know a little something about Wing Chun. It's kind of somewhat important to what you're doing, um, Wing Chun Illustrated has given all Dudes of Kung Fu listeners a really fantastic deal. Uh, If you go to magster.com, that's M-A-G-Z-T-E-R.com, and uh, go to Wing Chun Illustrated, you can get a free six-month subscription to Wing Chun Illustrated magazine using the coupon code DUDES in all capital letters. That's D-U-D-E-S. In order to redeem that you have to do it through the website you can't do it through the app as we previously said so i hope there's no confusion about that go to the website uh on checkout use the coupon code and then you'll get six months uh, free digital subscription to wing chun Illustrated magazine which of course you can then use your phone or um smart device to to uh read the magazine but you got to go to the website first so anyway uh that's all i have to say about that i hope you guys enjoy this ama i had a really fun time doing it and let's get started so the first question i'm going to answer today is from joseph mccain who commented on the dudes of kung fu facebook page if you could take one lesson with any living master who would it be and what would you hope to learn from them well, as I mentioned on the podcast a number of times, I've been extremely lucky with the people I've been able to learn from. And I'm also in a position where if there's somebody I want to learn from, whether it's Wing Chun or traditional Chinese martial arts or boxing or whatever, I I can just essentially get up and go and learn from them. So there's never really been um, a situation for me, at least since my school has been relatively successful, where I haven't been able to go to somebody that I want to learn. Um, Having said that, uh, in terms of Wing Chun, I I have the opportunity to learn from a lot of the people that I wanted to learn from. And I have a few uh, people that I respect in Hong Kong, some direct original students of Grandmaster Yip Man who I would love to be able to take a lesson with and and train with. And that's really just a matter of me uh, getting over there and and giving them a call. But uh, I think the one person. I would love to learn from that I have not learned from or have not uh, tried to learn from, I should say, would probably be the pride legend uh, Kazushi Sakuraba. Uh, For those of you who follow MMA and pride, Kazushi Sakuraba was known as the Gracie Hunter. He's an absolute... Uh, was freak athlete, 100%, one of the most brilliant and entertaining fighters you would ever hope to see. Um, I believe he teaches out of a gym in Tokyo, so when I finally make my way over to Japan, I would love to go to uh, Sakuraba's gym and you know do a private lesson with him. In terms of what would I expect or hope to learn from them, well, I've been around the game long enough where I realized that if there's a teacher that I really wanna learn from. I don't go in there with expectations in terms of what I want to learn because if I already put my trust that somebody is an excellent instructor or somebody is somebody of note that I would like to learn from, then I wouldn't go in there with presumptions of, um, I want to gain this because I'm going there to learn from this great person and what they give me is what they wanna share. And I wouldn't uh, try to impose my own idea on that before I even have a chance to learn from somebody Garrick Robert wrote into the Facebook page you have mentioned using some apps to help you with practicing your Cantonese can you recommend some language apps you use and also what happened to teaching Cantonese to Sean at the end of each episode that was by far one of your best and most entertaining segments mostly we just really need an update on Sean's IT guy at work fight la... Uh, Well, yeah. So we had originally planned to uh, teach Sean a little bit of Cantonese at the end of every episode. Sometimes it's difficult with the format of the podcast, which is essentially done in a very loose conversational format to keep up with doing specific segments. Because Sean and I can sometimes both go uh, into detail on a certain topic and then our, our hour, our 15 minutes is up and we didn't have time to do certain things. We are going to try to be a lot more disciplined about doing that, at least that Cantonese segment in every episode if you had a chance to hear the uh, last two episodes, uh, there was one episode where it was just Sean and I. I taught him some Cantonese at the end of that episode. And then we had Bobby Samuels, the uh, my friend who's a Hong Kong action film star, learned with Sammo Hung, taught him a bunch of uh, really nasty <laughs> Hong Kong curse words at the end of uh, that podcast as well. So we are going to try to be a lot more disciplined about it. I realize the audience really likes to hear Sean choke up on uh, Cantonese. Cantonese words, and and you know he can barely speak English correctly, much less Cantonese. So uh, we will try to be a lot more disciplined about that. In terms of apps, well, the main app that I mentioned is uh, a flashcard app, but that app is not. You cannot purchase Cantonese flashcards on that app. Uh, It's called Chegg C H E G G, and it's basically. A, uh, a, f- a blank uh, p- uh, flashcard app. So you create your own flashcards. So I've created something like 5,000 flashcards with Cantonese phrases, uh, single words, um, all sorts of different uh, uh, you know, parts of Cantonese, numbers, phrases, things like that that I can test myself with. And uh, every time I learn a new Cantonese phrase, I create a new flashcard for study. Um, but that's something that you would have to do on your own. There's a number of podcasts, Um, that uh, will teach you like one or two phrases uh, a day, which is really good because it's nice just to uh, learn a little bit every day and repeat it rather than trying to totally kill yourself with uh, vocabulary and things like that. Um, Cantonese is an absolutely fascinating language and very difficult to learn, um, but if you have the will, uh, you can definitely do it. Grant Pfeiffer wrote in on our Instagram page, Sifu Alex, I would like your opinion on how traditional martial arts, i.e. Wing Chun, uh, are surviving slash thriving in an era where mixed martial arts is arguably more popularized in the media, etc. Where I live, for every one traditional martial arts school, there are two MMA schools. Thank you. Well, this is a similar inquiry and, and topic of discussion that uh, you can find online and, and often comes to me uh, by people who are surprised that I do what I do for a living in the so-called age of MMA. And well, there, there are a couple things here, although this is a pretty straightforward question. There are a number of things to unpack. Um, well, one of the good things about MMA and uh, kickboxing and a lot of the things that are currently in vogue right now is that it really forces Chinese martial arts and Chinese martial arts schools to reevaluate how they present themselves. Um, Because for the longest time, you can see a lot of the old school Kung Fu ads were always like kind of violent-looking, like you would have some sifu. At least I know in in Teng in Wing Chun, it was always some, you know, Wing Chun guy punching somebody else in the throat with, like, a, you know, vicious-looking face. And, you know, it was always this kind of portrayal of the tough guy and all that kind of stuff. And I think that MMA has largely wiped away a lot of that reputation from those who practice uh, not just Chinese martial arts, but just traditional martial arts in general. And that kind of presentation is a little bit outdated. So when I look at some of the stuff that I did for advertising in the old days when I was still part of the Lang Tang organization, I'm, I'm usually kind of embarrassed because I was trying so hard to just kind of look like a tough guy and make these intense faces while, I'm you know, kicking someone in the knee and with one thumb in their eye and all that. So thankfully, it seems that MMA has kind of killed that a little bit, or at least when Chinese Kung Fu people still do it nowadays, and there are still Wing Chun people, even within my former association, that still have those um, in funny, intense faces when they do their their advertising. I, I think it makes that stuff look very clowny. and I think it probably always looked clowny, uh, especially to people who are, weren't in it, but now it's very obviously that way. So I actually find it's a good thing that MMA is popularized because it's kind of forcing kung fu people to take another look at how they present themselves and and to reposition themselves in the greater martial arts industry so with that as the backdrop uh, i don't think it's a problem what one of the implications in uh this question here was uh, you know for every um you know and M- for every traditional martial arts school there are two mma schools or, or or something to that effect and that's that's not really an issue well first of all personally i mean uh how many traditional martial arts schools do you want to train at, you know? um, If you have found the martial art that you like, whether that is MMA, kickboxing, Tai Chi, Wing Chun, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, whatever it is, you find the place you want to train because that suits your temperament, your style, your schedule. It's convenient. There are a number of factors that go into choosing a martial arts school that go beyond solely what the style is. And I think people underestimate that a little bit because Chinese martial arts schools, they're to a certain degree very threatened by MMA. If your Kung Fu school is lacking people, if people are not signing up, if people are not staying, that's not MMA's fault. That's the school's fault because you're not creating, or the school does not have an environment that keeps people interested. And there are many ways to keep people interested that have nothing to do with trying to copy MMA or trying to um, somehow make Kung Fu the more effective thing. Um, You know, the old arguments of, yeah, well, MMA is a sport and it has rules, and if it's a real fight, I'll poke you in the eyes. Yeah, but if it's a real fight, the MMA guy can also poke you in the eyes. And I find that's kind of a bit of a tired argument if you enjoy Chinese martial arts, then you have every right to practice it. And if you like the school and you like your Sifu and you like what you're learning, that's absolutely not a problem at all. Uh, You don't need to have this constant comparison thing. Um, I'm in New York City and in New York City we have any type of martial art you want to practice from the most popular to the most obscure. So it's always a little difficult for me to answer these questions because I live in the bubble of New York City. New York City is the kind of place where you can learn Wing Chun from all sorts of different types of people. And you can learn Brazilian Jiu Jitsu from the top of the food chain. We have Marcelo Garcia and Henzo Gracie. And and then the list goes on and on. We have Phil Nurse who runs the Watt, which is one of the best Thai boxing gyms in the world, uh, much less uh, New York City, obviously. So when people tell me this stuff, especially when they seem to be like, yeah, well, in my town, we have like two MMA schools and then, you know, only one Kung Fu school, how do they survive – I have to kind of laugh because I'm in New York City where you have the best of everything in New York City. Uh, If we take it away from uh, fist fighting martial arts and we just look at fencing, New York is the kind of place where you can go and learn Olympic fencing of any style, whether you like saber or foil, and you can go and learn from actual Olympic champions, or you can even learn historical European sword fighting if you don't like the sport fencing variation. So there's a guy, his name is uh, Martinez, who teaches downtown, where you can learn real no BS Spanish sword fighting and European sword fighting and quarterstaff and all sorts of stuff. So when it comes to competition, New York is, is, is definitely the place where that is your entire life. So I teach Wing Chun in the in the one place where there are other Wing Chun Sifus who are more senior to me or maybe even more famous than me teaching here as well. And there are other famous Kung Fu Sifus who run big Chinese martial arts schools. You have Paul Ko with his um, Bola Kung Fu Federation on 14th Street, which is a huge and beautiful school. And he's doing well and he teaches very traditional Shaolin Kung Fu, right? And he's a mere few blocks away from Henzo Gracie. So the the fact that you have um, MMA schools or whatever schools in proximity to traditional martial arts schools or that uh, modern MMA schools are outnumbering traditional martial arts schools does not mean that uh, there are are n- that there's no value in learning traditional martial arts. If that's something you want to learn, you should do it. I think it's a good thing because it means only the best traditional martial arts schools are going to survive because the, only the schools where you come in and there's a professional atmosphere of the school and the students are taken care of and the program is legit and students have a good time, those are the schools that are going to last, thankfully. If you look in the 80s, And you would uh, or if you could even get a phone book from the 80s and look up karate or martial arts in the yellow pages and just see the overabundance of so-called traditional schools and styles that you've never heard of before. And that was back in the 80s because there was no real way to check these things. There was no Internet. So if you heard of a you know, mudu kwan jitsu ninja style, You and you didn't know anything about martial arts, you'd be like, whoa, that sounds cool. That has a bunch of Asian sounding words, and I would definitely like to go and train at that place. But nowadays, it's easy to find out that, wow, that style is actually not even a real thing, right? So I actually think it's a good thing that the internet and modernity and MMA has forced a lot of BS to kind of close down. And the traditional martial arts schools that are still around are the ones that uh, deliver exceptional customer service, have satisfied students, and are usually run by people who actually know what they're doing and have a passion for what they're doing. So there will always be a market for traditional Chinese martial arts, and that doesn't matter how popular MMA gets. And I don't feel personally threatened by MMA schools, and I don't think anyone else should either. Richard White. Uh, wrote in on the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page. If you could have any person on the podcast, past or present, who would it be and why? Well, I think it would be too simple to go to the two most obvious Of answers for our podcast. We are a podcast that focuses on Wing Chun and Jeet Kune Do. So I think if we could have anybody past or present, I think Bruce Lee and Grandmaster Yip Man would probably be the number one obvious choice on that list there. Um, And I would assume that everyone else would kind of assume that that was the answer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, besides Bruce Lee and the late beloved Grandmaster of Wing Chun, uh, who else would I like to have on the podcast? Well, that's really difficult because if we... You know, think of it from a practical perspective. Even if we could bring somebody back from the past to be on the podcast, they would probably be like, what the hell is a podcast, right? Uh, there are also language barriers as well. But let's just say none of these things existed. Let's say they could mm, speak English or they could communicate. They wouldn't be freaked out by the uh, uh, idea of what a podcast is and what it does. Um, there are a lot of classic uh, Chinese martial artists that I would love to interview because it would be really great to know – what their ideas were and what they really understood because I'm of the firm opinion that a lot of what we do in Wing Chun, I can't speak for Jeet Kune do, but has been refined and updated and modernized over time. And I think that older versions of it would be a lot more conservative and traditional and I don't think that they would agree that certain problems like how to deal with a grappler are as big of a problem uh, or the problem that they actually are because they wouldn't have had the experience with it. I would love to have past Wing Chun grandmasters like Le, Dr. Leung Chan or Tan son Sun uh, or perhaps whoever was the actual creator of Wing Chun, whether that was a nun or her student or that was some master of both White Crane and uh, Erme, I would like to have them on the podcast. Uh, besides that, very difficult to say. Um, most of the people we would like to get on the podcast, I would like to think we'd be able to um, but definitely um, excluding Bruce Lee and Yip Man as the most obvious ones, I would like to talk to some of the historical figures in Wing Chun. Tyler Boyce wrote into the uh, Facebook page, how would you describe your cross-training with Damon Honeycutt? What was the most inspiring aspect of observing Grandmaster Poly Zink at your school? Have you integrated any taising Pekwar into your curriculum? Thank you kindly, Tyler Boyce. Well, wow, this is amazing. Uh when I see a message like this, I realize there are definitely people out there who know quite a bit about my background and even stuff that might even seem somewhat obscure. So, um, for people who don't know, uh, just to kind of unpack this cause there's a lot uh, going on here. Uh, one of my really good friends and, and one of the few people that i really consider like a training Kung Fu brother, uh, is a guy named Damon Honeycutt. Now, Damon Honeycutt is, um, one of the most, uh, influential martial artists in my career and not from teaching uh, me actual, you know, physical martial arts, punching and kicking and things like that. But he basically revolutionized the way that I look at movement and the way that I look at how one conditions their body to be able to apply their style. And um, Damon Honeycutt was a student of Paulie Zink. Now, for those of you who don't know who Paulie Zink is, uh, go ahead. If you're not driving a car, go ahead and pause this podcast right now. Go to YouTube and type in Pauly. Um, that's uh, with a I-E instead of a Y. Zink, Z-I-N-K. And just look at this uh, guy perform, okay? Paulie Zink in the 80s, was kind of one of the big um, Kung Fu stars. And he is a master of a style called Taisheng Pek Wah or Sing Pek in Cantonese, um, which essentially, you know, most people just say, oh, that's monkey Kung Fu. But actually, Daisheng Pek is a combination of two styles. It's a combination of Pek which is a type of kind of northern style, like an axe fist, something closer to what you might imagine in Choi Lei Phut. And the other component of it is monkey kung fu. Now, from what I understand, most people who learn daiseng pekwar have to learn the pekwar forms first, uh, meaning they have to learn the axe fist forms essentially as the foundational training. And when they have the physical conditioning and they know the forms, then at the higher levels, they learn monkey. Because a monkey, as you can imagine, is is quite a strenuous style to learn. You have to be, um, you know, in really low stances and you have to be able to kick and punch from um, positions that are, are, are really difficult for even relatively athletic uh, athletic uh, people. So um, the monkey kung fu is generally regarded as, as far as I understand. Again, I'm not an authority on dicing Pequoir by any stretch of the imagination, um, but the monkey kung fu is kind of the more advanced training, so not everyone has learned all the monkey kung fu. Well, uh, Damon used to teach... Uh, Uh, daising pekwar um, in new york city and there was a time period for a few years where he actually rented my space in midtown manhattan he was teaching his class out of city wing chun and he would teach Taoist yoga which is the flexibility and uh, conditioning component of uh, poly Zink's art and then uh after that he would have the martial arts training which they would do all sorts of conditioning and forms and things like that um it would seem kind of funny that somebody from a style that is so different from Wing Chun would end up being one of my greatest influencers. Um, but there were a couple things about Damon that made him really special for me. One, Damon is 100% one of the best human beings I've ever met in my entire life. So uh, even if it were not for martial arts, if Damon were in my life, we would be brothers, we would be friends. And that's completely independent of the fact that he is brilliant in what he does. Uh, Damon was also a dancer who toured for many years with Palobolos. I don't know if you guys know what Palobolos is, but they're that dance crew that... um, that would do the the shadow stuff. They, they performed, I think, at the uh, Oscars a number of years ago, and Damon was actually in that performance, and he toured all over the world. And those guys are just, you know, top of the food chain. I mean, this is like Cirque du Soleil-level stuff. So Damon is not just a martial artist but i mean he is a, a, a real world class performer and and in terms of movement i mean he is he is world class he is definitely what i would call top of the food chain but what damon influenced me was was with a couple things um he he made one of the most basic things he influenced me in was the importance of achilles flexibility in terms of movement wing chun which is a style that generally keeps either all or most of the weight on the back leg uh requires that we have uh, good achilles flexibility and either to keep that heel flat on the floor as we move and as we kick. A lot of Westerners don't have that flexibility when they try to kick. They often go up on the toe of their uh, supporting foot um, because they're lacking the ankle and Achilles flexibility to keep that foot flat so they can stay connected to the ground when they kick. These were things I was always able to do it because of my Taekwondo training, but he made me aware of certain reasons why um, you know certain people can kick better and stand better and move better. Than others, and that revolutionized the way I uh, do flexibility and mobility training for myself and for my students. Um, and Damon and I would have, you know, sessions where we would exchange. He would show me uh, some monkey kung fu and some uh, basic. Um, conditioning stuff. And I would show him some Wing Chun stuff. I think that uh, he also really liked how we use the elbows in Wing Chun. And I know that he uh, integrated that into uh, some of his uh, training as well. Um, But Damon made me look at perhaps a slightly more esoteric side of Wing Chun. Wing Chun is a very practical style. We tend to focus more on things uh, like timing and distance and leverage and angles and, uh, you know, very kind of practical, everyday way of looking at martial arts. Wing Chun is generally not the style that talks about using qi to fell our opponents or, you know, uh, using certain types of magical alignment structure to push somebody away. Um, we're a lot more pragmatic and a lot more straightforward. And that definitely has its advantages and that we we tend to want to test what we're able to do. But what Damon made me realize is that there's uh, an internal component that really has nothing to do with qi, although he's also really fantastic at qigong and things like that as well. But an internal component in terms of how we approach martial arts and how we approach uh, our own expression of martial arts because Wing Chun, while it's a style that we all talk about being adaptable and it's all about adaptation to how your opponent attacks, um, Damon made me realize that there was one major problem with Wing Chun and he didn't point it out but my training with him made me realize this. For all of Wing Chun's talk about being uh, an adaptable martial art, okay, we, um, as my uh, Si Gong would always say, you know, we change according to how our opponent changes. So we're trying to, to fill in the gaps and, and, and you know, react in the here and now, which is great. And that's how, in my opinion, every practical martial art needs to function. But I realized that it was still being done within a certain cookie cutter type way. So uh, within the Leung Teng Wing Chun, uh, family, for example, which I uh, come from, there's a strong contingent of Wing Chun people who generally try to move a lot like people, let's say like Imin Bo which is a very forward, very aggressive, uh, chain punch oriented style of Wing Chun. But that is one expression of it and that is one way to do it. And depending on your particular attitude, you know, if you are already kind of an aggressive person, uh, if you're already kind of a, somebody who feels confident stepping in and just mauling somebody with chain punches, that would naturally be the style of Wing Chun that you would gravitate to. But Wing Chun also has other components as well that are a lot more defensive and use angles and use more footwork and more legwork and more... Uh, um, uh, ideas that are kind of based in Sao and how we close the gap and what we do then with our opponent. And that is more what I would kind of deem the more Leng Teng way of doing WT or Wing Chun or the more Hong Kong style. And me coming from both the European and the Hong Kong traditions, I've tried to blend what I feel is kind of the best of both approaches. But I was never really sure if the, I was doing that right or if I was correct. And, and my my training with Damon made me realize that while I'm teaching my students the template of how Wing Chun works, like an operating system. There are certain things that are inherent to our character, our movement, our body types that we're really not going to change. And in that way, you can almost relate it to the five elements in in, in Chinese uh, Kung Fu theory, right? And different types of people, they might be more fire <laughs> or they might be more water. And even then, there's a yin and yang balance to things. So water, when, you know, the, the whole thing about water gets overused because of that one quote by Bruce Lee. But a lot of people... In my opinion, they don't actually fully understand and comprehend Bruce Lee's quote. He talks about that water can flow or it can crash. And the whole or it can crash is usually the part that gets somewhat excised from the meaning. Because people always think about, oh, you got to be like water and you got to flow. Well, Bruce Lee didn't say water was only flow. He also said water can crash. And when we look at the traditional Chinese elemental theory, you have a, a, a yin and yang version of essentially every element. And water can flow, but water can also turn into ice. And this is also an expression of water. So the ability to kind of find your own element, your own way of doing things, and adapting that to your body type, to your temperament. So that was one of the biggest takeaways I had from training with Damon. And since that time, which was like... Uh, If I recall, it was like the 2007, 2008, 2009, around that time. um, I try to at least, especially with my private students and the students who are in my classes, have a more, I guess, uh, adapted approach to teaching it. So rather than trying to get, you know, in the old days, I would have students that were a little bit um, more shy or not physically dominant. And I was trying to get them to step in and chain punch and overwhelm the guy and just punch the guy and step in and hit and hit and hit. And I realize the reason why some of them would hit a wall is because I'm teaching them an expression of Wing Chun that is only, first of all, one expression, and it's not really applicable to their temperament. So I have to find a way to teach the same core operating system of Wing Chun to all of my students, but also find a way that's really going to work for them in a way that they can apply it when they need it. And telling somebody who's not a naturally aggressive person that they have to just step in and maul the guy with chain punches and elbows and knees is not only a dangerous tactic, um, but it doesn't speak much for the adaptation we always talk about in Wing Chun. Oh, Wing Chun is a flexible style. Wing Chun is a practical style. Wing Chun is a style that adapts according to the practitioner. And people say this, but in my opinion, they give it no more than lip service. They're basically teaching everyone the same Wing Chun for the most part. Uh, of course, there are exceptions to that. And I would like to think that I wasn't that much of a cookie-cutter instructor before, but my training with, with Damon really made me realize that um, I'm not giving a product. I have to give people some something that will eventually become their own personal expression. And for that, I couldn't be more thankful, and I couldn't be luckier than to have Damon Uh, be the one to kind of expose me to that as well. And uh, Damon also uh, re-peaked my interest in traditional Chinese martial arts as well. As a Wing Chun practitioner, we have a tendency to just focus on the fighting stuff, okay? How do we solve the problem of violence? Someone's trying to punch me, give me a swing, tackle me, uh, try to give me an elbow. How do we solve these things using Wing Chun technology? But A big part of understanding the context in which Wing Chun came about is understanding the other Chinese martial arts that were around at the time Wing Chun was developed. And so this is part of the reason why I later uh, not only learned some Traditional stuff from Damon in terms of movement, but also later went on to learn from Mak Chi Kong and learn uh, broadsword because I want to improve the ability to use my bachamdo against broadsword or learn different fist fighting ideas from Mak Xifu so I can see, okay, these were the styles that were prevalent when Wing Chun was developed. And this explains a lot about why Wing Chun developed the way it did. Of course, we have a separate conversation, which is how do we apply Wing Chun against boxing, MMA, jiu-jitsu? And this is where we have to use our creativity and understanding of the Wing Chun principles to make Wing Chun relevant, which is also an idea that Damon helped me to, to, uh, um, to kind of foster, which is that... Um, I, I can perhaps be the one to help to do that for Wing Chun. And I don't just need to solely follow things the exact same way that uh, I learned it from Sifu Liang Ting and, and all the other people in WT. So, um, yeah, for that, I'm super grateful. Uh, it's very funny to see that people out there know uh, this, what I would consider relatively obscure fact about me that I, I you know, uh, trained with Damon Honeycutt. Uh, and um, in terms of Poly Zinc, Poly Zinc being Damon's teacher, I was a huge Poly Zinc fan since I was a child. I have all the Inside Kung Fu magazines, where Paulie was on the cover, and for me to actually then meet Paulie and have a chance to talk to him about martial arts and, and learn Taoist yoga for him from him and uh, do some uh, photos with him was was like a dream come true. Unfortunately, the photographer uh, there are a whole series of photos that I did with Paulie where we were all in these martial art poses, and uh, the photographer uh, never gave me those photos, and. I cannot get a hold of this photographer anymore, and uh, so somewhere out there, there's floating an entire series of photographs of me with Polly Zinc in a bunch of crazy kung fu poses, and I would probably give something away very valuable just to have those photos in my possession, because I haven't seen Paulie in many years. He's now mainly focused on teaching his yoga. Um, he kind of moved away from the martial arts world because it's kind of a weird, caustic, and uh, very aggressive world in, in certain respects, and Paulie's a very peace-loving guy. It's understandable why he would want to move away from all that, um, but yeah, somewhere out there is a bunch of photos of me with Pauly's got the monkey staff, I got the long pole, he's in a bunch of kung fu poses, I'm, you know, in some Wing Chun poses, so, uh, yeah, what I wouldn't do to get those back, and uh, consider myself very lucky to uh, be able to learn from people that I really respect, and, um, and you know, have such great friendships in martial arts, uh, like I do with Damon. 36 Styles on Instagram asked, oh, and by the way, 36 Styles you should follow on Instagram, that's the number 36. Styles, uh, They make amazing kung fu t-shirts uh, with all, like, the Shaw Brothers, Five Deadly Venoms, all that kind of stuff. They're on Twitter. Uh, they, uh, I'm pretty sure they have a Facebook page or a regular website. I've ordered a bunch of shirts from them, you know, with the Master Killer and all that kind of stuff. So... Um, yeah, here's a plug for you. 36 Styles, if you're an old-school kung fu fan, go to 36 Styles. They have really, really cool t-shirts, and uh, but you can also get like hoodies and all sorts of things. So um, go ahead and check that out. Uh, 36 Styles asks, could you name a few of your favorite old-school kung fu films that feature Wing Chun? Well, yes. I mean, there are a finite number of movies that are specifically... Wing Chun Kung Fu movies, there are a lot of films that uh, borrow a lot of Wing Chun techniques and uh, have a lot of Wing Chun influence in it. But, um, you know, with the uh, exception of the current craze of uh, Yip Man films that has been going on for the last 10 years, if we go back to the old school days, um, we're really looking just at a small handful of movies, about four films, that really were particularly uh, aimed at uh, Wing Chun. Uh, First of all is Warriors 2. Warriors 2 was Sammo Hung's first attempt at using Wing Chun and making a Wing Chun film. It's a highly entertaining film. The Wing Chun is, you know, for for purists, obviously, uh, there's hardly a Wing Chun film out there that any real purist in Wing Chun is going to be satisfied with the uh, choreography because you're always going to find elements that are kind of uh, overhyped just for the sake of doing, uh, you know, things that are more spectacular for film or whatnot. But I really like uh, Warriors 2. It's it's kind of the OG of Wing Chun films, in my opinion. Now, it doesn't mean it's actually not the first film to feature Wing Chun specifically, but in my opinion, it's kind of one of the first major ones. My favorite is Sammo Hung's sophomore attempt at putting Wing Chun to film, which is uh, The Prodigal Son. I find that in terms of a movie, The Prodigal Son is one of the most well-rounded and entertaining kung fu films you could possibly watch it has a great story, it has comedy it's it's well done and the fight choreography is absolutely amazing, and yes there are elements of the so-called Wing Chun stuff in there that have very little to do with Wing Chun, but um I'm also of the opinion if you see a lot of really famous Wing Chun Masters fight for real, you would probably see a lot of movements in there that didn't look like perfect Wing Chun anyway. So Prodigal Son is probably my favorite of all of those. Uh, honorable mention in um, the Shaw Brothers side of things. Uh, Shaw Brothers generally didn't have that much Wing Chun in there, although uh, for a few years, my uh, former teacher, Leung Ting, was actually the choreographer or the consultant for um, Mm -hmm. Shaw Brothers. So he did a couple of movies. They happen to be some of the most iconic films ever done for Shaw Brothers, uh, namely Five Deadly Venoms, Invincible Shaolin, Chinatown Kid, and uh, a number of others, uh, Ten Tigers of Kwantung, And Leung Ting was the uh, fight consultant Or fight choreographer Now um, I actually spent yesterday Hanging out with One of the uh, Venoms uh, Lu Fang, Who was the Centipede The, the, the bad guy venom From uh, Five Deadly Venoms And, and had chance to um, Listen to him Answer all sorts of questions L Ray Network uh, Shot a, a bunch of Interviews with him In spots for their TV station At my school So it was cool Just hanging out with him You know uh, Sometimes I have to Pinch myself When I look around And I'm like Wow I'm I'm doing a Kung Fu pose next to somebody I watched when I was a child you know it's pretty amazing so uh, it was great to hear um, him talk about that obviously he knew Leung Ting because Leung Ting choreographed uh, and was one of the consultants on a number of films he was on and He also thought it was funny that I was a Lung Ting student just thinking what what kind of a small world it was. Um, But basically what he told me was that a lot of the actors themselves basically designed their own fight scenes because they would design it around their own abilities. So um, one of the questions was, well, were there any stunts that you found particularly difficult? And Liu Feng gave the most badass answer. He was like, no, actually nothing was particularly difficult because we essentially – created our own fight sequences based on what we were able to do so people like Leung Ting would have been there just as consultants for oh well you're doing this style so you might want to hold your hand this way or we might want to integrate this into the fight scene so but for the most part it seems that the actors themselves were um, had had the main hand in terms of uh, doing the choreography so um, even though Leung Ting uh, was the choreographer for um, a number of Shaw Brothers movies um, they weren't particularly Wing Chun films with the exception of in Invincible Shaolin, which uh, one of the characters was a Wing Chun. Uh, student. And if you look at the Wing Chun that's performed in there, um, like if you look at a couple of the bits of the Siu Nim Tao form, it, it's very classically Lang Tang style Siu Nim Tao. So um, there you can see it as well. And Invincible Shaolin also has one of my good friends, Lo Mong, who was the uh, Toad from Five Deadly Venoms. And um, he plays the Southern Mantis Master because in real life he had learned Southern Mantis. So Invincible Shaolin is a really fun, really kind of classic badass Kung Fu movie, uh, which has uh, features some Wing Chun Ting also had his hand in another uh, film that was about Wing Chun, which was neither for Shaw Brothers nor or Golden Harvest. Um, it's called uh, The Formidable Lady of Shaolin, and the story is based around uh, the uh, story of Yim Wing Chun, and... As far as I understand, Leung Ting was, uh, if he wasn't the director, he was definitely the main choreographer because most of the Wing Chun fighting in that film is very much like um, what you could call Leung Ting style, for lack of a better term. Uh, There was another uh, Wing Chun film I saw it a very long time ago. I remember it not being really super great, uh, starring Melvin Wong. It's called Descendant of Shaolin, uh, sorry, Descendant of Wing Chun. And uh, Melvin Wong is actually a lawyer in Hong Kong. My wife, who's also a lawyer from Hong Kong, uh, knew him as well. Um, Melvin Wong was a replacement for William Cheung. Originally, William Cheung was going to be the star of Descendant of Wing Chun. But um, according to um, what, what I heard in Hong Kong, um, William Cheung was basically butting heads with the uh, production uh, at that um Film And he wasn't able to do the choreography very well. And I think that he also had a number of ideas of his own in terms of um, how the Wing Chun should be presented that were at odds with uh, what they wanted to do. So I think after one or two weeks, they fired William Cheung and and, uh, replaced him with Melvin Wong. So that's kind of an honorable mention. Uh, Of course, everyone knows the Yip Man movies, but the question was specifically about old school. So I would say Warriors 2, Prodigal Son. Invincible Shaolin and uh, Descendant of Wing Chun are kind of your main go-tos there. Uh, honorable mention, if you ever see Pedicab Driver with Sammo Hung, especially in his fight scene with uh, Lao Ka Liang, he uses uh, quite a bit of Wing Chun in there, and that's uh, also quite entertaining. Now to a question from our Instagram page. Afrothorpe asked, What is the best way to test your Wing Chun structure in solo practice? Well, this is kind of a tough one because, first of all, different Wing Chun systems have different ideas of what constitutes structure. Um, I personally don't really teach that kind of more Tai Chi-esque idea of structure. Uh, I also think uh, while there's certainly a lot of things you can work on in terms of your alignment and positions, which is pretty much what the forms are for, um, you can't really test your structure unless you have a partner. I mean, you can... Train your structure, but you certainly cannot test it. And I know it's difficult for some people um, who are learning Wing Chun, who perhaps have to learn from videos or they have to learn from books because they don't have qualified instructors. And we often get these kind of questions in terms of how can you basically get good or learn Wing Chun without actually having somebody else there to either teach you or train with. And unfortunately, there really is no way. You need to get an instructor. You need to get a partner. And this is. Uh, probably the only way, I suppose, to answer your question. One could test their own structure. My good friend Anton Summers wrote in on the Instagram page, if the dudes had to give up Wing Chun and JKD and dedicate themselves to one or a few other martial arts, what would they be and why? Wow, that's really difficult. Uh, I can't imagine my life without Wing Chun. Um, I think that if I could not practice Wing Chun for whatever reason, I'm on an island somewhere and I'm not allowed to do it or I'm not allowed to teach it, I would probably focus on boxing, traditional Western boxing. I, I really love boxing. I'm a huge fan of boxing. I train it quite regularly and I'm um, just fascinated by uh, it as a martial art and, and the conditioning and the training in there as well. I'm also a big fan of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, so those would probably be the two that I would focus on, uh, but that would be a really difficult and bleak existence for me to live uh, without Wing Chun. As for Sean, we'll have to let him answer that for himself when it's uh, his AMA. My good friend Ozan Andach asked, uh, can you tell me how to connect modern training methods with classical martial arts to increase training? I see a lot of guys doing the same movements without knowing what they're doing, just repeating because it's done for hundreds of years. Well, this is uh, definitely the perennial problem in traditional martial arts where you have... uh, perhaps a number of solo drills, maybe too many solo drills uh, in which people will repeat. Um, and again, that can actually also in, in extend to partner exercises as well in which people do them and do them and do them and they don't really know what they're doing and they don't know why they're doing it. And of course, this is an issue of education. Instructors need to understand uh, what the relative value is of the different models of exercises that we give the students. you know um, not everything is on the same platform form, Uh, qi sao training, sparring, solo training, bag work, these are all things that are necessary to be able to apply Wing Chun well and to get good at Wing Chun, but they all don't have equal footing. And sometimes what you see in traditional Wing Chun schools is that there's an overemphasis on certain drills, which might just be part of a developmental process. um, But in certain schools, these drills are kind of the king and people do them over and over and over again, perhaps overestimating the net value that this is going to have in the improvement of their fighting skills. So as we hopefully improve how Wing Chun is taught, we improve how Wing Chun is trained, we can also streamline how and what we're teaching our students and what the relative value of different exercises are. And there also is the case, if we um, just take Özhan's question at face value, that there are things that people repeat over and over and over again because... That's always been that way in Wing Chun, which are legitimately important, but they still might not actually know what that's for or, or why that is. So mindless repetition uh, is not the path to mastery either. So it's very important that instructors can contextualize how and what they're teaching and why the students need to do it. So the short answer to your question, Ozan, is that this is really a matter of creating more qualified instructors who can teach better and more mindful and purposeful Wing Chun. Some dude named Sean Madigan wrote into the uh, Facebook page, uh, while I know you absolutely love what you do, what other career did you ever see yourself doing? Um, I would say to that if I was not teaching martial arts full-time, I would love to do something where I had the excuse to go to Hong Kong and do research in um, uh, history of Chinese martial arts. I'm really fascinated with making sure that these things are preserved for future generations, because the current generation in Hong Kong is not really doing a good job preserving these things, and and who knows how much has already been lost. I don't even want to think about it, as a matter of fact, and we want to kind of stop the bleeding as much as possible and preserve the traditional methods and, of course, improve them for the future. So if I was not teaching martial arts full-time, I would still love to be in some kind of capacity where I could research it, especially in Hong Kong. Antonio Hart wrote in, at what point of your development did you feel the integration with Wing Chun techniques and your body? Uh, Second part, uh, actually has four parts here. Um, How do you visualize the techniques outside of forms and drills? What has the study of Wing Chun given you spiritually and mentally? What are some of the things you have done to get past those mental blocks in your training? Well, these are... uh, a bit Uh, these are four questions here easily either one of those questions uh, could be an entire episode in and of itself um, because uh, they're kind of very layered and very deep Um, so the first question at what point in your Wing Chun development did you feel the integration of Wing Chun techniques with your body well it's a little bit of a slow process at first I think when you learn anything Uh, that it's going to take a little bit of time before it becomes second nature. Uh, Some things are less intuitive than others. Um, Obviously, in Wing Chun, for some people, the big hurdle is learning to close the gap when someone is attacking them, right? If you can imagine uh, before you learned anything about martial arts, someone's about to throw a punch at you, your idea would be to kind of run away or duck or try to avoid it. And certainly, that is the right answer uh, in many situations. But if we're going to apply the Wing Chun strategy against a punch, you know, one of the things that we advocate in Wing Chun is closing the gap. And for some people, the biggest hurdle is just that idea of, okay, there's something coming at me and um, I need to go forward. And that is a big hurdle for some people. And that's going to take a little bit of time. And that can be different for everybody. You know, some people might uh, be able to do that right away, and other people might need. Uh, a year or two years to really feel the confidence to uh, close the gap when somebody attacks them with a, uh, you know, footwork and some techniques. So it's difficult to say, um, In my own development, I I compartmentalized things a lot. There were certain things that I understood about Wing Chun right away. There were things that drew me to Wing Chun, which was closing the gap rather than staying there and trying to block punches and kicks, which is what I learned uh, in my seven years of Taekwondo. The idea that someone was going to kick me and I would just close the gap and, and, and knock them down while they're standing on one leg actually seemed to solve a lot of my problems that I had when I was uh, practicing Taekwondo with bigger, stronger partners. So that was really easy for me. But for example, relaxing my arms when I'm doing Chi Sao with somebody, rather than trying to use brute strength to stop somebody from trying to uh, push me or move my arms, um, that took me a little bit longer. The integration of forward pressure took me a little bit longer. So um, it's difficult to look at Wing Chun techniques as this monolithic thing, like as if one day it all kind of clicked. In different parts of my Wing Chun training, different things clicked in at different rates. So, it it would, the question would almost be, uh, need to be more specific uh, in in terms of, well, when did I feel that what really integrated? And to a certain degree, I'm still a, uh, well, not even to a certain degree, I actually am still a work in progress. So, there are certain things that I want to improve and integrate even better. So um, it's a process and that's essentially what Kung Fu is. And it might be dangerous sometimes to think of it as like, at what point did you just get it? Um, Certain things will be like epiphanies and certain things will take time and certain things you will already understand even before you really even realize it. So the second question, how do you visualize the techniques outside of forms and drills? Well, I, I don't really... And again, um, I might not be the best person to answer this question because I've been doing this now for 22 years. So a lot of the visualizations and things that I needed to integrate my Wing Chun, and I've already done all that stuff. Now, uh, probably the most... V- Visualization type thing that I do is the shadow boxing I do when I do my conditioning training. So when I'm stepping and punching and uh, you know doing these things for for time. Um, I'm essentially imagining somebody fighting me, right? So I'm, I'm doing my Wing Chun shadow boxing, and I'm imagining somebody pressing me or somebody trying to tackle me or somebody moving away or defending my punches. And so the visualization of my Wing Chun comes in the integration of it in terms of its movement in a very holistic way. Um, I would assume your question might be a little bit more specific than that, but I, um, I, I don't really know how to answer that adequately. The third question, what has the study of Wing Chun given you spiritually and mentally? Well, I think Wing Chun, more than anything else, has made me realize uh, how many issues I have as a human being. (laughs) Uh, Wing Chun, like I think any practical martial art, forces you to come face-to-face with your inadequacies. Now, not in a way where it's trying to make you feel bad, but to be aware of it. When you, uh, Whether you're practicing wrestling or Brazilian jiu-jitsu or boxing or Wing Chun, if you honestly train with people of different heights and different sizes and different skill backgrounds, you'll, you will naturally feel that, yeah, there's certain types of people that are more difficult to deal with and certain types of people that are easier and different people present different challenges and... What this does is this always relates back to you because there are different ways you can accept that information. You can um, be the best guy in your class and then you move up to another Wing Chun school or another class or whatever, and then suddenly you're not able to do things with the same efficiency as you were able to do with your previous set of partners. And this happens a lot in my school when students go from the intermediate level and then they pass what what we call a student level 9 test, which is when they become a black shirt, they become a senior student, and then suddenly they're in that class and then it was kind of it's kind of like going from being the senior in high school to being the uh, freshman uh, uh, in college. It's like you were the big guy last year and now suddenly you're you're kind of doing your best to 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 keep up. And there's two ways you can deal with that. You can decide that um, your ego can't handle that because a moment ago, you were the top guy. Or you go, okay, well, this is the new challenge. This is the new hurdle. So Wing Chun constantly forces you to do that because you're always new at something in Wing Chun. You know, When you feel that you've really integrated the first two forms, then you learn the third one and you realize how little of the first two forms you actually understand. By the time you start feeling comfortable with the third form, You're already doing the wooden dummy and you realize maybe you're not as comfortable with the third form as you thought you were. You're not quite as good because when you are presented with new information, new experiences, sometimes you find that there are gaps in what you learned previously or they might be gaps in terms of your ability to apply it. So Wing Chun constantly forces you to re-examine your your skill because at some point you're going to cross hands with somebody and you have to show them through your cheese out through your sparring, that you can actually apply it, right? The theoretical understanding will only take you so far. So in terms of the mental side of things, the the ability to always constructively look and realistically look and assess where I am at as a martial artist, where my current skill level is at, where I'm still deficient, what I need to work on. There's been no better template for that in my life than Wing Chun training. And I suppose that that folds into the spiritual question because these are things that can be applied to your, your general life. You know, uh, I have two kids and uh, I definitely do struggle sometimes with time management because I have a very busy uh, teaching schedule and I have a lot of obligations in terms of my time and business and things like that. Um, but I also want to make sure that I make time for my daughters. And there are times when I realize uh, the way that I handled a certain situation wasn't right. And uh, I need to correct that. So sometimes I'll go and I'll I'll pick up a book about child behavior or I'll, you know, read a tutorial online or something like that. So that kind of idea of, oh, I didn't handle this as well as I could have as a parent, let's say, uh, or I didn't do this decision correctly as a business owner. um, That template for constantly assessing and finding new solutions and fixing it, I got through Wing Chun. So I hope that answers that. Um, The fourth question is, what are some of the things you've done to get past those mental blocks in your training? Well, I suppose uh, one of the things we can do uh, when we have a mental block is we can go old school and we can just continue to try to plow through it. There's something that's giving you difficulty and you're just going to continue to practice and work and try until you get a breakthrough. Sometimes that works, oftentimes it doesn't. You hit a plateau for a reason. You hit a plateau because you're using the same strategy and the strategy is not working. And so continuing to use that same strategy, uh, sometimes you might find that it is just a matter of reps and time and the understanding comes organically or by osmosis, but oftentimes we need to change our approach. And that is the flexibility and adaptability that I always talk about in Wing Chun. It's like people want to talk about how adaptable and flexible Wing Chun is, but when they hit a plateau, they wonder why, but they continue to apply the same strategy. And, of course, we wouldn't do this in Wing Chun, but people will still do it in their own training or with themselves. So sometimes it takes a new perspective, uh, changing up your training partners. um, And sometimes the best thing to do when you really hit a wall is to leave that alone. Go do something else. In In the case of Wing Chun, you know, let's say somebody hits a wall in Chi Cell. Okay, well, maybe you're not able to get the benefit or you're not able to uh, – um, you know, do what you want to do to somebody else in Chi Sao. So okay, maybe now's the time to say okay, let's work more on our footwork. Uh, let's m- work more on our punching power. Go ahead and, and decide for the next two weeks you're going to focus on hitting the heavy bag, hitting the wall bag, doing more air punches, doing exercises to improve your ability to apply power. So you kind of put that problem on the shelf for a little bit and focus on another aspect of your game. Or you're going to do more uh, practical sparring and less Chi Sao. Or you're going to work more on the forms or whatever it is. You you, you There are plenty of things within Wing Chun to occupy yourself with when you're hitting a plateau with one particular area. So so uh, And if you do that for a bit and then you come back to your problem, you may come back with new perspective. Or you may find that um, the answer to your problem came organically. Or maybe you don't have that same problem anymore when you come back to it. The other thing is, and I have to say this and I may not be the case here with, uh, with Antonio, but certainly it's the case with other people who are listening to the podcast who've hit blocks. Hey, we've all hit plateaus and blocks in our training and anybody who hasn't hasn't really practiced. Um, I would have to say that one of the biggest blocks people get is really, it's, it's a perceived block. It's because there is a comparison to the other people in the class. There's a comparison to uh, the other guy who started around the same time as you who seems to be picking it up Quicker, all right. And again, I'm not saying that that's particularly the case here. I'm just this is just my advice. One of the things we can do to really improve our abilities in martial arts is to stop the constant comparing to the guy next to us for, for a couple of reasons. One, if you're in the same kung fu family, that were the same kung fu school or martial arts school or whatever it is you do, the person who's in your class is not your competition. That's not the person you're going to need to defend yourself against the street. Uh, in a street fight, that's not the person you have to fight in competition, hopefully, if you're a competitor. Um, and that is also, that person has their own struggles, and they have their own things to deal with. And the fact that there's somebody else who's super talented, or picks things up quicker than you, or learns something in the same lesson, and by the end of the lesson, they seem to have gotten it, and you don't seem to have it, that doesn't mean anything. Because if your instructor is a good instructor, they're not going to be comparing you to somebody else and going, oh, why isn't this person getting it? They want you to be better than you were when you walked in the door that day. And that should be your goal as well. And sometimes being better means you just have better understanding. You might not be more skillful. Maybe you are still not able to integrate the technique or you're still not able to do it. But if your understanding of some aspect of your game or yourself is better by the end of the class or let's just say at the bare minimum, you got a really good workout and you're physically stronger at the end of that class than you were before you came in, then that's a plus. Usually when people are thinking about hitting a wall or they think they're hitting a wall, there's usually some kind of comparison to somebody else. And that uh, is very detrimental to our um, journey because our journey is personal. And somebody else may be there for a completely different reason than you are. And sometimes people who are physically gifted at learning movements right away struggle with other things. So uh, when we look at things like social media or we look at people's performance in classes, you are not looking at the struggles and the things that go on behind the scenes. You're looking at the highlight reel. And you need to be very mindful of not confusing the highlight reel of somebody else with what's actually going on. And in addition to that, none of that has anything to do with your own personal journey. So I would say stay focused on your own thing, change up what you're focusing on, and then come back to it and see if the problem still exists. Kwok Nguyen wrote in on our Facebook page, uh, Why do you think Wing Chun is prone to political infighting? Is it just human nature? Well, as I've often told my students and other people that I've had this conversation with, uh, it's really a matter of human nature. There are politics in anything that involve more than two human beings. Uh, it's just that, for example, if you practice Wing Chun, you would obviously be more attuned to the types of politics that are happening in Wing Chun because that's what you happen to do. And in addition to that, you we tend to be more tuned to the politics that specifically affect our school or line or lineage. And we tend to kind of filter out the politics that are within the other lineages and styles uh, that are somewhat related but not directly our own. If you were a Kyokushin Karate practitioner, you'd be very well attuned to all the politics that happened after Masoyama died in the 90s and, and the problems with the uh, successorship in uh, Kyokushin Karate after that. Um, but there were plenty of politics in Kyokushin Karate before Masoyama passed away, um, the same as their politics in Hong uh, Hongkun lineage, and are politics in mainland Chinese Wing Chun lineages, and there are pretty much politics in every style. For example, in judo, the founder, Jigoro Kano thought one of the worst things that could happen to judo would be that it would turn into a sport, uh, especially an Olympic sport, uh, which it is now. So uh, judo is practiced most widely in a format that is completely contrary to the wishes of the founder of judo. So for sure, there are factions in judo that don't believe it should be an Olympic sport. They believe that there should still be an emphasis on self-defense and the use of judo techniques against larger, stronger opponents as opposed to fighting within weight classes and and so on and so forth, which uh, essentially uh, is what Jigoro Kano thought would kill judo if that ever happened, and that's exactly what happened. So when it comes to Wing Chun in particular, of course, if you're practicing Wing Chun, you're going to be attuned to that the issue is that while many Chinese Kung Fu practitioners are usually very proud about the fact that, um, you know, Kung Fu doesn't have belts and doesn't have a ranking system and so on and so forth, that is also a big reason why there are so many politics within Wing Chun. So, had Grandmaster Yip Man had the foresight to, for example, issue instructor certificates. So when students had completed the entire system, or at least they had learned the unarmed system, they would get maybe an instructor certificate. And when they finished learning the weapons, they would have gotten some certificate that said that they had completed that. I think that while there would still be plenty of politics, again, the moment you have more than two people in the room, politics are always going to be there. But it would be a lot easier in terms of weeding out and vetting who was qualified and who actually learned enough to teach other people. So while Kung Fu people are very quick to kind of laugh at the karate guys for having all their belts and all that kind of stuff, um, a big reason why there's such an issue politically is because, well, there are no set standards of qualifications, at least in the time of Grandmaster Yip Man. So regardless of who the person is that was a student of Yip Man, you are essentially taking their word uh, that they are qualified to teach and that they really learned enough to to be able to pass something on. So in the more recent years, especially since the 70s, there have been Wing Chun Sifu's, uh, notably my former teacher, Leung Teng, as well as many others who did create ranking systems. And this definitely helps to um, make it very clear in terms of who is qualified to teach, um, who who learned what, and so on and so forth. Now, ranking systems don't solve the problem of politics completely. Uh, I can definitely speak in the case of Learn teng wing chun in certain degree uh, to a certain degree the ranking system in fact became a political thing to uh you know hang levels over people's heads if they wanted to become a certain level or a rank they had to do certain things which had nothing to do with their actual qualification in terms of the martial arts so you know there's also a slippery slope in terms of those kind of things as well um I think if a ranking system is implemented and it's done with solid standards and it's really stuck to and adhered to, it can be an extremely powerful tool to reducing a lot of the politics of who learned what and who is qualified to teach. Now, politics in wing chun go beyond that as well it's not solely a matter of who is qualified or or who learned what but there's a lot of just interpersonal politics that are involved with wing chun people and there's a lot of animosity between kung fu brothers because um in in many respects grandmaster yip man did not treat everybody equally and did not teach everybody in the same kind of way and that of course is going to rub people Um, very much the wrong way. There's still students of Grandmaster Yip Man who are around. Some of them are even on Facebook who their daily posts are just a litany of uh, complaints about all the other Wing Chun people. And they're essentially uh, continuing this really unfortunate tradition we have in Wing Chun, which can be summed up by the Chinese phrase which means to be locked in eternal strife. I'm not entirely convinced that these kind of politics began after Grandmaster Yip Man passed away. Uh, From what I understand, these things had been going on even while the old man was around, and he also tended to pick favorites, and and those are not things that are going to help reduce the amount of politics um, that are in Wing Chun. I think if we're going to make an honest attempt to reduce politics, we need to stop looking at the other people and waiting for them to do it and we need to stop complaining about other people who are being political and we need to just start doing it ourselves. We need to start having the kind of conversations that are going to increase understanding. We need to be mindful of the things that we say when we're talking about other Wing Chun lineages and groups and family members because we as individuals have the power to determine the direction of Wing Chun and we can easily continue down a self-destructive path where we're kind of looking down at everybody who does everything differently from us or uh, still perpetuating um, insults and, you know, petty arguments that have been going on for 30 years that have nothing to do with us. It's easy for us to perpetuate these things or we can just simply kill it and move on. So I don't see Wing Chun politics as a uniquely Uh, or I should say politics in Wing Chun is a uniquely Wing Chun issue. I think there are politics everywhere. What we need to do is we need to start taking some steps to make sure that it doesn't continue. Leland Tunnell wrote in on the Facebook page, what are some breathing techniques that helped you control your flow of energy during sparring that would help prevent tiring out too easily? Well, this is a a pretty common question uh, that I get in the various mediums. I think part of the issue is when people practice Chinese kung fu there's always or let's just say traditional martial arts in general there's always this assumption that you know you there's some kind of secret meditative technique that you can do shortly before you spar or practice and then if you just do this one thing you can go on and fight for hours and hours and hours and never get tired and uh, unfortunately there seems to be a conflict between people who have a strong belief in the mystical powers of traditional Chinese martial arts over what in fact happens to our bodies from a physiological standpoint, i.e. science. So the question of breathing is a, a perennial question in martial arts as it, as it should be in any physical sport. When we think about the relationship to our movements and breath, it should be a very organic one. Uh, we simply are not, Capable as human beings to change our breathing patterns radically, especially in the moment when we're under stress. A lot of breathing techniques that are talked about are usually breathing techniques that are practiced during things like meditation or yoga or doing the forms. And this is a very different phenomenon than what's going on when someone is coming at you, trying to punch and kick you and, and cave your face And if it's a real street fight or if somebody's just training with you intensely as if, as if we're in a training session in our school. So the topic of breathing and the topic of how that relates to our training is a, is a very nuanced one, but at the same time, there's no breathing technique that is going to overcome a lack of physical conditioning. If your anaerobic and aerobic capacities are not trained and they're not up to the standard of the exercise you are doing, you will get tired completely independent of breath. We have two types of conditioning in terms of uh, cardiovascular conditioning. One is aerobic, and this is essentially when you're able to do exercise, heavy or otherwise, with the presence of oxygen. So if you can talk while you're doing the exercise, like jogging, it's usually aerobic. Anaerobic is heavy ballistic exercises, which usually uh, are done with the lack of oxygen, like the uh, ability to push through when you're not able to breathe fast enough to, to keep up. For example, hill sprints, running upstairs, those things that really suck on your lungs. That's anaerobic conditioning and anaerobic conditioning is very important for self-defense because self-defense is a should be a extremely explosive kind of burst of techniques because you want to get the fight over with as quickly as possible right if you can't avoid the fight if you can't run away you uh, need to be able to really push down on the pedal and and finish it as quickly as you can, all right? Now, of course, there are limits to that, and it also depends on the strategy. If you are not sure you can really beat your opponent, you may not want to do something that's going to force you to gas out right away. But again, this is a slightly more nuanced topic. When we're practicing the form, or we're doing solo exercises, or we're doing meditation, or we're doing anything that doesn't involve somebody else interacting with us, it's... Um, a lot easier to focus on our breath or the type of breathing that we're using. Namely, when we do the siunam tao form, we like to practice a very normal, controlled type of breathing pattern. So I actually don't think about breathing in a different way when I'm doing the forms. What I'm trying to do is keep an even breathing pattern from beginning to end, because we have a tendency as humans to hold our breath when we're doing physical movements, especially physical movements that are new to us. And the best thing we can do is just try to breathe normally while we are performing our forms or doing some kind of shadow boxing or basic techniques so that the relationship between breath and movement is an organic one. Also because Wing Chun tends to be a ballistic style, especially when we're doing things like chain punching, it's nearly impossible to time some kind of inhale, exhale cycle with every single punch. If you tried to do that while chain punching, you would most likely hyperventilate. So what we're looking to do is while we're moving quickly with our hands or feet or stepping or being aggressive, we are keeping as much of an even rhythm as breathing as po- with our breathing as possible. Now that is made easier By cardiovascular training. So, there's unfortunately no Qigong trick or special breathing exercise that is going to uh, help you overcome that lack of wind when you're really pushing it with a training partner because that is a cardiovascular issue that's not solely a breathing issue. So, part of what we can do is uh, increasing our cardiovascular endurance, I've always recommended getting on the Concept Two rower. Concept Two rower, you can train both aerobic and anaerobic capacities. And it's absolutely fascinating device to uh, practice with, and you can push yourself. And if you know how to measure, um, you, you know your um, VO2 max uh, by doing the 2K test. And you, then you will learn how to train the different types of aerobic and anaerobic capacities that we have. Um, you will be able to one-to-one apply this stuff to your your training. Um, so unfortunately, everyone would like there to be some kind of breathing trick to make us last forever. But uh, MMA fighters, professional kickboxers would not need to run, would not need to do rowing, would not need to do sprinting if it were simply a matter of finding the right breathing exercise. So one, my advice is breathe, all right? Try to integrate a normal breathing rhythm to everything you're doing. And two, up your cardio because that's the only guarantee that you're not going to run out of wind while you're practicing intensely. The next question is from our Instagram page by have the handle Tiger Crane Studio. Is there an internal training set slash practice for Wing Chun? Well, this is similar to the last question I had about the breathing exercises. And again, it all depends on the instructor, different lines of Wing Chun tend to focus on the internal aspects a little bit more. I'm, I'm a lot more pragmatic when it comes to this stuff. Um, I, I believe that practicing breathing techniques and integrating breathing techniques to your movement, to your training, to your, your fighting, your forms, cardio, whatever is absolutely vital. I mean, it would be ridiculous to think that breathing is not important. It's the one thing that keeps us alive. Um, people are always looking though, for some kind of secret set as if, somehow there's a special way of breathing that is completely unbeknownst to you as a human being that is going to suddenly make you more powerful than the average human being. Uh, Oxygen uptake is one of the best ways we can reduce stress. It's one of the best ways we can replenish lost reserves to our muscles, especially when we're practicing intensely. But there are limits to it. Like I mentioned before, if your cardiovascular training is not to snuff, if your, your heart is not able to handle the load that you're asking it to, uh, to do based on how hard you're pushing yourself, the breathing technique you're using can help you stretch it out a little bit, but it will not be the deciding factor. In terms of internal sets developing all sorts of mystical chi powers and whatnot, I simply don't believe in that stuff at all. Um, And I say that, and I actually do practice a form of qigong. I do it every morning. I do a a basic set called the uh, eight-section brocade, which is a super simple qigong set, which has eight basic movements where you coordinate your breathing with some really basic movements to kind of wake up. For me, I use it to wake up my body in the morning, and I always feel great after I do it. And it's become part of my daily routine. If I don't do it, I I don't feel like my day's getting off to a good start. Now, when I get up in the morning and I do these basic exercises and I coordinate my breathing, I feel great because for one, I get my joints warmed up. I get everything, you know, my neck, my shoulders, everything. It feels like it gets lubricated in the morning and taking in nice breaths of air with the window open in the morning just makes one feel really great. But I have a feeling that this effect of practicing qigong and and, and the feeling that it gives me is more a matter of just getting up in the morning and moving my body because movement is one of the best things we can do to stimulate our mood. And... That is definitely a byproduct of it. Taking in oxygen in the morning when you're trying to wake up. I mean, these are all things that are going to make you feel great. Now, whether that is a result of chi, so-called chi circulating through my body, um, that's not something that can be tested yet by any kind of scientists. And until it can be, we can't assume it exists because there's always this kind of very strange thing. Like, well, science can't test chi. All right. Well, then, how do you know it exists? All right. The the fact that. Uh, it, it can't be tested is not a very strong argument for its existence, all right? And in the most basic way, qi in, in Mandarin or hei in Cantonese literally just means breath. So hei gong or qi gong in Mandarin really means to work with the breath. And working with the breath is something that is not exclusive to Chinese martial arts. It's necessary in any kind of physical training you do. If you're a sprinter, if you're a long-distance runner, a swimmer, um, a a strength athlete, um, an endurance athlete, a wrestler, whatever it is that you do, you have to work with your breath because you have to find the right way to breathe according to the type of activity you do. And for me, that is just as much Qigong as the people who get out in the park and practice formal movements and, you know, put all that, put that all under the banner of Qigong. Um, there, there is a way to practice the Siyunam Tao form with more of an emphasis on breath, slowing the form down, and doing what's known as uh, the Yikfu Cup, Kap, which is the reverse breathing. And this is something that, e- even in 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 that sense, is still very practical and still very pragmatic and has nothing to do with developing some kind of Qi power. The reason I take kind of a hard line as um, a Chinese Kung Fu practitioner on the so-called qigong Qi sets and, and all these things that kind of go under the banner of qigong is that most of the demonstrations that are done in the name of qigong like for example breaking bricks or um, you know you have stone slabs on someone's back and then someone comes with a sledgehammer and breaks it or bending spears with the throat These things are all parlor tricks. And if anybody takes me out to, you know, wants to take me out to coffee uh, someday if they're in New York, uh, I can tell you how all these things work. These are nothing more than cheap parlor tricks. And once you see how they work, and then you go back and look at those demonstrations, that kind of veneer of, incredible uh, athleticism or incredible mystical powers completely disappears when you understand that these are essentially just a bunch of cheap magic tricks. Now, does this mean that that such a thing as internal skill doesn't exist? Uh, I, I wouldn't go that far either. There, there are definitely Chinese martial arts practitioners who focus more on their breathing and focus more on the internal mechanics and doing things that we could deem soft or using alignment and structure to knock somebody over or move somebody or pull somebody and they can call that internal and they certainly have a high level of skill. And I think what Chinese martial artists need to come to grips with is that Uh, this dichotomy between hard styles and soft styles. This is something that really came about in the last hundred years or so when martial arts became a hobby because everyone wants to classify the thing that they do. And there's always been this idea that internal martial arts are more sophisticated than external martial arts. And having had the, the chance to really be good friends with people who are both from internal and external lines, I wouldn't say that internal martial arts by default are more refined. It might seem more refined as a pursuit because the idea that you can fell somebody with, you know, idea, you know, using your mind to create positions and patterns and breathing and and taking someone's you know power and making them fall down sounds a lot more slick than smashing someone's face with your bare fist. But that doesn't mean that smashing someone's face with your bare fist is any bit more easy than doing something internally. And even if you want to use so-called internal skills to fell your opponent, you still need a fair amount of practice. So whether you're an internal or external martial artist, there's no shortcut to the skill. So a simple way of breathing in the siunam tao form or learning a special qigong set to do in the morning is not going to ever replace hands-on time dealing with somebody trying to grab you, punch you, kick you, throw you, whatever. And this is something that a lot of modern martial artists understand by default, whether they do kickboxing or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, they know that the way to apply is through practice. And there was a point when Kung Fu people understood that too. But over time, everyone got so excited about these classifications of internal and external, and oh, if I just practice this qigong set, my uh, my body will be impervious to strikes, uh, or I will never get tired when I'm you know chain punching on the wall bag. And then they set these these very strange pursuits and put a high level of value on things that they actually don't really know much about, and the conversation has got away from practice and partner practice and putting in the time. Um, so I'm not saying that, you know, the, the question here was, was whether Qigong is going to give you the cheat code for fighting. But I always feel that that is kind of the undercurrent. And I haven't seen an internal, so-called internal Wing Chun guy that did anything to me or, or did anything in a demonstration that couldn't easily be explained and isn't and also isn't highly contextual to that situation. My concern is always the larger phenomenon of fighting. How do I most efficiently protect myself in the highest number of situations possible? And that is something that needs to be explored through practice and not a matter of trying to find some kind of shortcut through internal training or breathing. Joseph McCain wrote, on our facebook page how do you coordinate physical conditioning with martial arts training do you strength train and if so when and how i find it difficult to cheese out when my upper body is too sore well that's again uh, another multi-layered question there so we have uh, quite a bit to unpack in in the broad sense you know how do you coordinate physical conditioning with martial arts training well i think that Uh, a big component of martial arts training is the strength necessary to be able to practice those movements. And this is something where I'm a bit at odds with a lot of other people who practice Wing Chun because, of course, um, Wing Chun is a style that's known as a Chinese Kung Fu style that doesn't require one to be particularly strong or uh, well-built or athletic in order to be able to do it when one compares to, for example, some of the other southern martial arts styles. Now, um, I, I tend to, where, where I reject that general statement is, is here. Um, the goal of every intelligent martial art, in my opinion, is to not uh, rely solely on brute strength to counter the opponent's brute strength. And I think that in that aim, Wing Chun is not unique if you listen to the definitions of judo or uh, karate or, or many other martial arts they're going to say that as well so when Wing Chun people kind of banty about this thing that um oh we don't use you know strength uh, to fight our opponent we use you know we use our opponent's strength against them well get in line pretty much every martial art claims that and that is not something that's unique to Wing Chun um because this has kind of been the claim that's bantied about because of our uh, legend story that Wing Chun comes from a woman, so clearly Wing Chun cannot be based on using force against force, that somehow gives people the implication by association that we do not need to be physically fit or athletic to do Wing Chun. And I think that that is um, an assumption and a jump that doesn't mean need to be made. If you look at... Um, the idea that I don't want to have to rely on raw brute strength to counter the uh, strength of my opponent. But that does not imply somehow that I shouldn't value being physically fit, or that I shouldn't aim to move better or um, to be stronger or to have better cardiovascular conditioning. So I don't make that jump. There are many Wing Chun Sifus, including those who come from my own line, that... um, kind of use that to basically say, well, I don't need to be fit. And I see a number of Sifus within the WT lineage, for example, that are, uh, it's not a matter of them just being out of shape, um, but it's just a matter of them, like, they, they can't move well. They don't lift up their leg well, they can't kick well, they can't punch well. And... They somehow allow themselves or they give themselves a pass because, oh, well, Wing Chun, you don't need to be athletic or in shape to do Wing Chun. And I go, "Eh, I don't know about that. All things being equal, you can still be practicing a style that doesn't require you to fight against your opponent's strength using your own strength. Does not mean... And should not imply that you do not need to be physically fit by any stretch of the imagination. So when we look back to the Chinese from the Qing dynasty, and that's something that it's still within recent history that you can look up. I mean, you can go and do a Google search. For people in the Qing dynasty, there were already photographs uh, and and cameras available in, in, in the latter part of the Qing dynasty where you can see what the average person at the time looked like. And the average person in China at that time, especially the average man, was in shape. And the reason was because, well, this was... Um, how everybody was essentially at that time. They had to work really hard for everything they got. They had to work in the fields and they had to do, you know, their daily life was so physically demanding. And, you know, the the amount of manual labor that the average man had to do uh, or woman had to do as well was you, you cannot compare it to today where we have an office job or we're spending all of our time hunched over looking at our phones. So when you say that the average person back then didn't need to rely on brute strength to apply Wing Chun, we're forgetting that the base of the average person back then was much stronger than it is today. So we do need to have a, a good physical fitness, at, have good physical fitness as our foundation if we're going to practice these things. And I don't think that we are not supposed to be using brute strength or being stiff or, or using our muscle to outmuscle our opponent. That is not an excuse to be lazy and, and, and out of shape. So I always like to Preface anything I say about physical fitness with that, you know, that I do believe we should be in shape and we should move well in order to apply Wing Chun efficiently. And we should even just do it just as human beings, regardless of whether we practice martial arts or not. And I also like to remind people that the average person in the Qing Dynasty was in better shape than the average American, let's say. So, yes, I do uh, practice physical conditioning. And uh, to a certain degree, I like to integrate as much of that with my Wing Chun training. That's just being efficient. So uh, there are certain types of physical conditioning that I can do on the wooden dummy and that I can do with a wall bag or heavy bag or uh, steps and punches training, Um, things that are essentially just doing Wing Chun at a more intense level, similar to what you would see a boxer doing, except that I'm doing it with Wing Chun instead of boxing movements, and that's a regular part of my training. In terms of strength training, there's really only a handful of things that I do to improve my raw strength. One of them um, is pull-ups. Pull-ups is nearly a daily thing for me. If I'm not um, injured or sore or I don't have something else, I um, have a pull-up bar right in the door of my office. And every time I walk by, I do one or two pull-ups when I'm leaving and entering my office. And then a couple times a week, I'll specifically do a pull-up workout, which might just be a combination of free hangs, sets of pull-ups. And um, sometimes I'll combine that with uh, knee bends and squats and and push-ups and things like that. I I like to use my body weight more than I like to use uh, additional implements. So pull-ups are big for me because pull-ups is a whole body thing. And, um, you know, you're strengthening your grip, your wrists, your forearm, biceps, shoulders, all the kind of things that are really important for us in in martial arts, especially when we're trying to grab and push and punch. Um, I think that Uh, The combination of push-ups and pull-ups is probably the two most efficient things you can do to improve raw strength besides actually practicing martial arts or doing wrestling or or, or doing anything where you're physically engaging with somebody. Um, And that's a regular part of my daily routine. Uh, I do occasionally lift some kettlebells. I used to lift kettlebells a lot more than I did nowadays um, because I also use the concept to rower for cardio, which is something I've talked about before. Um, that type of cardio training, because I do both aerobic and anaerobic, tends to also have a really positive effect in terms of developing muscle. So by doing the rowing machine, I not only get great cardiovascular fitness, but I also, the overall muscle uh, tone that I have on my body from my legs, shoulders, arms is improved greatly at the same time I'm doing the cardio. So the rowing machine has allowed me to cut out a lot of what I used to make up with uh, in uh, kettlebell training. Um, But I do occasionally uh, use the kettlebell for a couple exercises, shoulder presses, deadlifts, um, cleans, and I also like to do rows with the kettlebell. Those are all really great, super complimentary to Wing Chun. And um, so, you know, those are things that I do on a regular schedule. Usually, uh, my workout schedule alternates. So Monday, I will do something that's very heavy cardio. So I'll do like a very intense routine on the Concept2 rower. And after I do that intense cardio routine, I'll usually hit the heavy bag. I'll do maybe 10 three-minute rounds on the heavy bag with a one-minute break. And uh, since I do Wing Chun two to four hours a day, depending on how many private students I have. Sometimes it's actually much more than that. Sometimes I do Wing Chun six hours a day um, with my students and and, and with teaching. Um, because a fair amount of my daily routine is Wing Chun, I will skew how I train, or that will skew how I train with the heavy bag. So if I have a really heavy day on Monday where I'm teaching a lot of Wing Chun private lessons, I'll tend to do a little bit more boxing in my heavy bag routine after I do the uh, rowing. If I don't have as many Wing Chun private lessons on that day, then I will tend to do a little bit more Wing Chun on the heavy bag. So I change it up according to what my regular schedule is. I find that that's also a really great way to keep motivated. You have a basic plan that every day you're going to do something, but you have enough flexibility built into your training plan that if you just feel like some days I get up and I just want to do Wing Chun and chain punch and kick and elbow knee and use Wing Chun techniques on the heavy bag. And other days, maybe it's a day after I watch, Rocky movie or something I just want to do 10 rounds of boxing on the heavy bag so I allow myself the flexibility to do what I want to do that day according to my mood because that allows me to stay motivated so Monday will be like a heavy cardio and heavy bag day Tuesday will be the opposite. I'll do a very light cardio, maybe just like a quick 5 to 10 minutes on the rowing machine, and then I will do more strength-based stuff. Now, the strength-based stuff, like I said, most of it I get through the rowing, but I will usually use the Wing Chun weapons uh for my strength based training so i have routines with the long pole and routines with the double knives that i do that uh, increase upper body strength and lower body strength and the knives are really fantastic for forearm and wrist strength and the pole is also just great general um uh, body strength training exercises and uh, i will occasionally do some weapons training that i uh, learned from maxifu which is like the broadsword just to mix it up a little bit so i try to keep the strength training close to the martial arts training. Um, But I will occasionally just do movement stuff. I'll do stuff from Monkey Kung Fu where I'm just squatting really low and I'll do odd angle push-ups and I'll do things that might look like CrossFit or I'll use like uh, one of those body dummies and do Jujitsu like movements on the ground just for uh, general movement. So I change it up quite a bit and then that would be Tuesday. Wednesday would be a repeat of Monday which would mean kind of heavy cardio and heavy bag and then uh, Thursday would be back to lighter cardio a little bit more strength training and then uh friday i usually don't do anything in particular because friday I have a lot of private students, so I basically will do about six hours of Wing Chun on Friday. So that'll be a day where I practice a lot of Qi Sao and tossing my students around and sparring. And, you know, I hold the pads for all of my students that do private training with me. So um, if you've ever held pads for for people who are at a certain level, that's also a workout in and of itself. So um, I try to make my workouts as organic as possible to... um, to the Wing Chun and martial arts training that I do. So um, that's usually kind of a Monday through Thursday thing. And then Friday and Saturday, I leave open to uh, my mood if I want to do anything else. And uh, that's uh, what works for me. And that's in addition to my morning routine, which I do. Um, I get up every morning. I've discussed that before. I have a light Qigong routine that I do, which is kind of eight exercises, eight section brocade, which wakes up my joints. And I might do a couple pull ups and things like that in the morning and just kind of wake up a little bit. And once a week, I'll jog. My preferred cardio is... Rowing um, because it's the easiest on my joints and it's also the most motivating for me. I really don't like running, um, but once a week I meet with a trainer uh, who's a jiu-jitsu trainer and uh, I, I we grapple for an hour. And his school's about a mile away from where I am, and then I'll I'll run there one time a week, and that's the only time I'll ever jog. Um, and, uh, I used, I've grown to like it somewhat, but I think the only reason I like it is because I only do it once a week. I don't think I could run every day and I don't think my joints would like that too much either. So, um, yeah. And the final point, I find it difficult to do cheese out when my upper body's too sore. Well, yes, we, uh, we need to create a baseline of fitness uh, that we can push a little bit every day. But certainly, if you're getting to the point where you're so sore that you can't practice qi sao, um, you want to rest a little bit more or you want to taper your workout so you're not getting to that point because it doesn't really help you to be training uh, skill, to be doing skill based training when your body's completely sore. And rest is really, really important. Um, Of course, there are a lot of people that worry about things like overtraining. Um, (laughs) It's always funny. People are always like, well, aren't you worried about overtraining every day? Well, It can happen for sure, but you will know your own body. And the more you train, the more you practice, the more you'll be aware if you are overtraining. And I think there are a lot of people out there who don't train at all because of some perceived fear of overtraining. They're so afraid of overtraining. They don't train at all. You know, allow yourself to overtrain every once in a while. Feel what that's like. And your body tells you, hey, that was too much. And then you have some new input and then you taper it down and you adjust accordingly, just like you would uh applying this scientific method to any other part of your life. So don't be afraid to overtrain once you know every now and again because that's going to teach you where your limits are. It's okay to every once in a while find out where your limits are. Um but I wouldn't recommend constantly being sore especially when you're there for your skill training uh sessions. So Craig Savino wrote into our Facebook page, of the various Wing Chun movies from The Prodigal Son to the various Ip Man films, where have they been successful versus unsuccessful in their portrayal of the martial art? Interested in how you feel these films capture the feel and essence of the martial art and the challenge between capturing the essence versus capturing technical notes and applications? Well, this is a really great question. And of course, when we look at the Ip Man movies or we look at any of the Wing Chun movies, it's kind of a... Kind of a double-edged sword for us, because I think um, any qualified Wing Chun practitioner probably has some technical issue with some of the choreography in nearly any portrayal of Wing Chun on the big screen. Now, I say this, and I know that there are actually some Wing Chun schools out there that I'm thoroughly convinced that if Donnie Yen does Yip Man 8, And the choreography in Yip Man 8 doesn't bear any resemblance to Wing Chun. Like he could be doing backflips and jumping kicks and spinning axe fists or whatever. They would just be like, wow, it's so great to see that Wing Chun on the screen because it just seems that Donnie Yen is unassailable in his portrayal of Yip Man. And uh, there are even some Wing Chun schools out there that use donnie yen's yip man image as a marketing logo for their school so it's like they're not even using the real yip man anymore now it's it's donnie yen's yip man is yip man and and I, i've even seen them use that in, in in the logos of their schools and i i, I just think that that's kind of absurd uh, well it's absurd for a couple of reasons one if you, people don't really know about these films or don't know about Wing Chun, I don't think that putting Donnie Yen's face there is going to attract students you wouldn't have otherwise gotten. And two, if you do claim to teach some kind of traditional Wing Chun or whatever, I I, I don't see why putting an actor who's not even a Wing Chun practitioner himself as the logo for your school is is any kind of smart branding. But but anyway, but I digress. Uh, every time the Yip Man movies come out, we always have an influx of new students. Usually uh, the influx is of... Chinese students, so uh, they they have a strange effect of of bringing a lot more uh, Asian students to our school in New York, um, whereas Western students tend to trickle in all year round, but Chinese students tend to come in in big bursts around the times that these movies come in, so I mentioned on another one of the questions on this uh, AMA uh, a little bit about the different uh, movies that have portrayed Wing Chun. Um, and as I mentioned before, Prodigal Son is is my favorite because it's extremely well-written kung fu film. The action is really great, um, despite the fact that it does have some moments in there where the Wing Chun doesn't really look that much like Wing Chun. and um, That's why I really find that they have been successful, especially Prodigal Son, um, in, in that it captures the essence of Wing Chun when you see uh, Yun Bu's character, he's playing Le, uh, young Leung John, you know, learning on the table, learning short force, and learning by hand from his Sifu, basically through sparring. Um, I find that *Prodigal Son* in that way captured the essence of Wing Chun perhaps better than a lot of the other movies because there was uh, a moment when uh, Yun Byu's Lang John wants to practice on the wooden dummy, and Sammo Hung comes out and he says, "Ah, do, you know, don't waste your time with that. Let, let's go out and actually try it out." And 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 so he teaches him, you know, takes him out into the field, and then teaches him his experience in fighting and telling him how he has to crowd close when someone tries to to. Uh, kick you and 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 how you can't stop your punches short and you have to punch all the way through. And I find in that way, Prodigal Sons, the lessons that are actually taught in the Wing Chun training portion, uh, even though the execution may not be 100% what we would consider as orthodox Wing Chun, but the lessons were 100% correct. And they conveyed essentially how Wing Chun was passed down, uh, at least according to what I understand in those times, which was mostly through hands-on practice. And the idea that we have all these drills and and all these solo exercises now it seems to be born more out of uh, the time where Wing Chun was taught professionally on, on a mass scale, where you would then have large classes of people in which you needed to find ways to keep everybody occupied. But when it was just one teacher... Uh, teaching the student, then most of Wing Chun could have been transmitted um, by hand, which you definitely see that in Prodigal Son. And that feeling of your Sifu kind of building you up, uh, even if the things that are coming out of their mouth sound like they're trying to break you down. But that feeling that they're teaching you step by step through kind of a school of hard knocks is, is in my opinion, the essence of how Wing Chun should be practiced and um, in, in, in should be taught best in terms of uh, passing down the skill. So for me, uh, Prodigal Son is still the number one in terms of capturing the essence and not just uh, my favorite film in in terms of the uh, uh, production values or entertainment values. The Yip Man films are a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I mentioned before uh, Yip Man The Final Fight is probably the most accurate of all the Yip Man movies in terms of telling the story because they do dive into some things like uh, Yip Man's affair with the Shanghai Girl and, and his uh, opium addiction, although they tend to glance over it a little bit. And they do make an attempt to kind of get the story more correct. And when I uh, talked to the producer, Sing Guot Lam, who produced a number of the Yip Man movies, he told me that that was also his favorite of all the Yip Man movies as well because it was the most accurate in terms of the story. So uh, I would probably say Prodigal Son for for capturing the essence of Wing Chun and uh, Yip Man The Final Fight for capturing a little bit more of the essence of our beloved late great grandmaster. The Yip Man movies uh, with Donnie Yen are basically just kind of blockbuster action movies about a guy uh, named IP Man and I don't really relate them too much to the actual story especially uh, every, uh, every one that comes out seems to be getting more ridiculous in, in terms of the story and the plot and they now have signed on to um, make Yip Man 4 which apparently is uh, Yip Man Goes to America which of course never happened in case you were wondering and so who knows what kind of ridiculous story they're going to spin there and you know they've long since not had any of the essence of, of the real Yip Man. Uh, Yip Man 1 was probably the best of, well, this definitely is the best of all of the Donnie Yen Yip Man movies, even though the story is nowhere near accurate, but it was a compelling film in terms of uh, the writing. It had you know a little bit of struggle in there. Of course, it made the Japanese the bad guys because you, you, you cannot market a film in China if you tell the story about um, why Yip Man really left <laughs> mainland China. And so... Uh, but with each successive Donnie and Yip Man movie, it tends to just get a little bit more ridiculous. The Grandmaster with Wong Kar Wai definitely had some interesting moments. Wong Kar Wai is an art house director, which is rare f- for Hong Kong anyway. And of course, it feels like many other Wong Kar Wai films. It just happens to be about Yip Man and Wing Chun. I don't really take it too much as anything somewhat uh, biographical about Yip Man. It's just an interesting movie. It's a Wong Kar Wai film about a guy named Yip Man. And that's kind of it. In terms of The Legend is Born, which is the the attempt to tell Yip Man's story, it's kind of the prequel. That one is definitely completely off the rails in terms of having anything remotely linked to not only the real story, but even the essence of it. And I think that that kind of is the main thrust of Craig's question here is that, yeah, we're not taking any of these films as any kind of biographical films. I mean, they are films. The, the reason they're made is to make money, and they're going to do whatever they think they need to do to make these films marketable in their respective markets, so they're not documentaries, and we don't have to look at them as documentaries, but... If if we want to look at them in terms of capturing the essence, um, I, I I really think uh, the aforementioned two, the the prodigal son and Yip Man, the final fight are really the only ones that achieve those aims um, in terms of uh, capturing the the technical essence of Wing Chun. Well, you know you cannot even get two students of Grandmaster Yipman Man to agree on how bongsao is supposed to be applied, so that's always going to be an issue because if you have one Sifu doing the choreography, so you had um, Leo Ao Yang doing, I think the, the having some hand in the choreography for the first film. Then of course, people who are not fans of Yip Chun's way of doing Wing Chun are not going to be big fans of that. And then I think uh, Cliff Ao Yang uh, who's a Wong Sun Lung student did some of the stuff in the second film and then if you're not particularly um thrilled with the, the Wong San Leung style of doing Wing Chun you're not gonna uh, like the way the choreography looks in there so I think that you know probably if there's a film in which your Sifu or your lineage had a hand in doing the choreography you're going to by default think that one is the best one um and I don't think you're gonna be able to make everyone happy so I don't even think that that's an aim that anybody needs to go for if the um the essence of Wing Chun is there then you can perhaps please the greatest number of people but I I don't think anybody um, in the real Wing Chun community can be 100% uh, uh, or the entire Wing Chun community can be 100% satisfied with any attempt at it and uh, I'd mentioned this on the show before but uh, this always bears repeating when one of the first Yip Man movies came out or it was either the first one or the second one I wrote a blog this was a number of years ago and I just complained about how it was just off the rails in terms of the story. When they first came out, I was really upset about it. I've, I've since chilled out. Um, I have two kids now. And when you have kids, you you start to not really give a crap about things like whether films are accurate or not. You start having other concerns. And one of my Hongar friends pointed out to me, he says, ah, now you know how we feel whenever another Wong Fei Hong movie comes out. And I never thought of it that way. For those of you who are listening to the podcast I'm not sure who Wong Fei-Hung is Wong Fei-Hung is probably The Kung, the real Kung Fu master Who's been portrayed In the most number of films ever um, At least in Hong Kong and uh, Wong Fei-hung was a real Hungar master. He's essentially the the, the undisputed king of Hungar and was the student, uh, or sorry, the sifu of Lam Sai Wing. And his father was Wong Kei Ying, one of the Ten Tigers of Kwantung. So Wong Fei-hung is a huge folk hero in southern China. And Wong Fei-hung was portrayed most notably by Quan da King in, uh, I believe, close to or over 100 films. And then later... Um, Wong Fei Hung was, was played by many other people, including uh, Gordon Liu and uh, Jackie Chan in the Drunken Master movies, and then Jet Li in the Once Upon a Time in China series. So, um, and then recently in Rise of the Legend, uh, he's been played again. So, Wong Fei Hung is like the perennial topic of you know Hong Kong films because he is the, the the classic kung fu hero from the south. Now he was a real life person, but most of the movies that have been made about him are, are essentially fictionalized. Accounts about somebody who did in fact exist, and I generally watch Wong Fei hong movies with the same uh, attention to the veracity of the the history as I would any other kung fu movie. Because, well, I'm not a Hong Kong guy, so whether Wong Fei hong really, uh, you know, fought on the um, uh, on the jong while he was doing light uh lion dancing against some other school whether that actually happened doesn't doesn't really sway the needle for me because well I'm not a hungar guy but the moment they portray a wing chun guy I'm like wait a minute that didn't happen that didn't happen and I get really upset and so one of my friends who practiced Hong Hongkun said yeah now you know how we feel about the Wong Fei Hong movies so I realized yeah I suppose we are now all in the same boat that our beloved grandmaster is also the topic of a number of popular films Robert Puig wrote into the Facebook page, are Hong Kong Ga Sao uh, and Sao inventions of Grandmaster Larang Teng, or did those actually come from Yip Man? I don't see many Yip Man students doing that. Well, this is a pretty heavy question, and I suppose I could easily do an entire podcast just answering this, the uh distinctions between gao sao and latsao and and the, the different types of freehand training we have in Wing Chun in, in WT in the Teng system is is not something that's easily explained in an audio podcast and, and even in a visual medium it'd be difficult to explain it in any kind of way that's meaningful for people who who, who practice the the art this is kind of definitely something that needs to be experienced so I'm going to kind of do it, try to do it some justice here, but it, it's not going to be the easiest thing to, to describe on an audio podcast. So, um, Guo uh meaning crossing hands, is um, a, essentially a, a a type of uh, a, a term that describes the Qi sao sparring that we do. In the WT system, uh, the Qi sao is taught in a very structured way, and that has been both the blessing and the curse of Leung Ting's Wing Chun. Uh, most notably in Europe, where um, a lot of people had learned the qi sao sequences from Grandmaster Luang Teng, but they had not gotten the Hong Kong method of integrating these things into what's called guo sao or Lut sao. And this is something that really is only done from teacher to student. So um, in, in when I talk about the European Wing Chun method, I, I need to um, explain... Um, as, as many know, um, Grandmaster Leung Teng taught all over the world, and in, in Europe, especially Western Europe, was his big stronghold. And that's where most WT, or so-called Leung Teng Wing Chun schools, exist in the world. And the success that they had in Europe, and still have in Europe to this day, is really staggering. Um, the European Wing Chun organization has since gone on to completely change up their programs, and... Um, quite frankly, they have distanced themselves quite a bit from Grandmaster Long teng in the last few years, um, especially since Grandmaster Long tings unfortunate incident with uh, um, in 2009 where he, he, he had some an unfortunate domestic violence issue, and, and the EWTO decided to really go in another direction and, and develop things in their own way. So the EWTO now, um, the Wing Chun that's taught there is, uh, is you know, they still retain the classic Hong Kong Wing Chun that they have from Leung Ting, but they have now integrated other aspects as well, from grappling and, and, and MMA and, and internal martial arts, and, and they have a, a pretty wide offering. So it, it's difficult to talk about the EWTO uh, on in the same breath that I talk about Hong Kong Wing Chun because the the two the two things are are, are quite different now, and um and that's not meant in there's, there's absolutely no judgment call in there. What the E W T O is doing right now is they're going in their own direction, and this is something that should be applauded in martial arts because in in Chinese martial arts and traditional martial arts in general, being original and developing your own thing is usually not. Um, Uh, is usually not accepted and it's usually not encouraged. So for for them to kind of go their own way and do their own thing um, is, you know, it's actually a great thing and I'm very happy for them and I'm happy for what they're doing. and, And, you know, I myself am still kind of an old school guy. I teach Hong Kong style Wing Chun, but I do at least like to think that I teach it in a more modern way, and I've integrated a lot of aspects of practical self-defense and and, uh, sparring in a way that is not really taught on either the Hong Kong side or in the old EWTO way that I learned. So um, I also like to think I'm a a little bit not the average Hong Kong-style Wing Chun guy, but um, so it's difficult because there's a a huge... uh, uh, kind of a huge spread in terms of what constitutes WT these days, because there are just so many different people teaching it. So, so I need to say that kind of uh, before I go into any explanation of the differences between these terms. Let's so it quite simply means free hand. Now, it, it, in the old days, it used to be narrowly defined as sparring. So any kind of sparring, any kind of practical fighting, any kind of time that you were using your Wing Chun, either against other Wing Chun or against non-Wing Chun, that was called Lat And purely speaking, that's that's not really the definition of Lat When we, we talk about Qi Sao, Qi Sao means that our hands are sticking, means you your hands are, are, are clinging to your partner's arms. There are moments in qi sao when you're doing lap sao, when you're doing cross-handed stuff, where one hand is free and one hand is sticking, right? So both of your hands are not entirely sticking, right? Just maybe one hand is sticking, your other hand is in a wu sao, right? Maybe your partner's in a punch and you're doing bong sao wu sao. So your wu sao is free and your partner's wu sao is free. And the moment that occurs, that's already Lutso. That means that there is a hand that is free. So it doesn't mean that both hands have to be free for it to be uh, um, categorized as Lutso. Just as long as both hands are not entirely sticking, you're, you're kind of going at it, sparring, punching, and there's, there's momentary losses of contact, that is automatically um, what we would call Lutso. So um, the narrow definition that Lutso had in Europe, which was like sparring or, or something like that, is actually not the the true definition in terms of how it's understood by uh, Cantonese-speaking Wing Chun practitioners. And so, 拇手 uh, is another term that means uh, something like freehand qi sao fighting. So the term's 拇手, which means crossing hands. Now, that doesn't mean to cross hands like to, to trap somebody's arms or to cross left over right. It means to cross hands the way you would say uh, you're crossing swords with somebody while you're fencing. It means... To cross hands, like we are going to cross hands now. So, uh, whether you use the term cell or sao, um it it in in certain circles within Hong Kong it can mean exactly the same thing. So what you what one sifu designates as lutsau, the other one designates as gossau, and when you look at it, it's essentially the same thing. And this is an application of your chi cell techniques as well as your fighting techniques in one thing so you are combining your footwork and your punches and your steps and your qi sao and your uh, um punching techniques controlling techniques in a kind of a mix so there's no then there's no pre-arrangement so this is essentially what gaul sao or or, or lat is now there's a way to build this up step by step in uh, learning things wing chun you would learn Uh, what's known as sections or sequences. You would learn like a couple cycles of movement and then you would try to apply those movements when your partner resists and defends and does different things. And that, of course, brings about a number of different variations. And this is something that really needs to be taught by hand by an instructor or you need to learn it at a school that's qualified. And there are very few people that can really do it well. I've even had the... uh, um, very difficult task of, of taking on students who had learned Wing Chun elsewhere, WT, because even in the States, there were a lot of people who learned the so-called Long Teng Wing Chun who didn't actually know how to do Go Sao or La They thought La was some kind of pre-arranged sparring exercise, or they thought that Go would just meant free Qi Sao or some kind of free-for-all, and they really couldn't do it. And so these were even people who are like high-level technicians. And they had come and trained with me for a little bit. And it was very difficult to get them to understand what this was because they had so many preconceived notions of what they thought Qisao was and what they thought the training was. And, um, you know, I really tried and it was really difficult. And where I, I haven't had that problem has been with my own students in New York, the people that we've built up step by step. Uh, it's been very easy to teach them this and they can freely apply their Chi Soo against a resisting partner and and even when non-Wing Chun is put into the mix, or especially when non-wing chun is put in the mix, but it's a very difficult for me to teach these to people who come from supposedly come from WT or come from another WT school and haven't learned it, and they're already some kind of technician grade, and then to get them to understand that a lot of what they have learned about Chi Sao and how chi Soo is trained is is perhaps not entirely correct. So um, again, it's kind of difficult to explain exactly what it is, and it really must be taught by hand. Now, as to whether these are inventions of Grandmaster long Teng or not, well, what what Grandmaster long Teng did is he, he codified uh, the T-cell movements into programs so that the future generations would know exactly how would have all the movements, kind of like a set list, all right? This is this is the most common attack, this is how you defend it, this is how you do lapso, these are the different attacks from lapso, so on and so forth, so that these things would get transmitted almost like a script, so that future generations would not be losing movements, um, which was always a problem in traditional Wing Chun, that Sifus would generally teach the techniques that they liked, and some of their less favorite techniques wouldn't get passed on, and then so the, the entire palette of what was available in Wing Chun wouldn't be accurately passed on to the next generation because there was no set standard right so learnington created that set standard the problem is that many people just thought that the sequences were the chi sao. And I know from my time in Europe in the old days that everyone would just get bent out of shape about all the different variations of the sections. Well, oh, see so-and-so shows the uh, the pull attack with two hands, and the other guy shows it with one hand, and the other guy does it with a turn, and the other guy does it with a shift. And what they didn't realize is that Lang Teng's way of doing it is pretty standard. But variations occur through sparring. But without the sparring, how are you going to know how to create these variations? Because it's based on how your opponent attacks. So they would often, in the old days in Europe, teach like, you know, if, if you wanted to drive yourself crazy, all you needed to do was visit different WT schools within the EWTO and ask them to teach you the same program. And you would never see the same version twice. And while that's okay in terms of personal expression, we, don't, we are not cookie cutters here, but when you're teaching a standard program, there needs to be a foundation. There needs to be a basis. Okay, so what is the main objective here? What am I trying to do? That's your, your zero point, that's where you start. And based on how your partner reacts, that then automatically creates the different variations and why you need to do things different ways. And that wasn't necessarily communicated in the old days. And I didn't really understand a lot of that stuff until I began taking private lessons from Sifu Leng Ting and from Sifu Carson Lao and, and, and other Chinese instructors myself. So um, Leng Ting maybe was the one who organized it, but he certainly wasn't the originator of gossau or Lutso. This is something that exists in all the Wing Chun styles in Hong Kong. And um, I even know from my time hanging out with Sifu Chan Chi Man, who is a uh, early period student of Grandmaster Yip Man that um, doing lutso, this was a normal part of how they did Qi and he showed me how he trained it and it started in Pun and then they would attack and then there would be punches and, and it looked very similar even if the techniques themselves are a little bit different or applied slightly differently but the format is still there. It's the same format that we essentially do in Leng Teng Wing Chun and he also told me that uh, Grandmaster Yip Man would randomly attack them with movements from other Kung Fu styles. So in the middle of Qi Sao, he would drop down into a low stance and give them like a Choi lei foot punch to the gut and then, you know, come up top with a back fist or something just to test their reaction against the types of styles that were prevalent in their, in that day, namely uh, Choi lei Fut and other Shaolin styles. So um, this is certainly not an invention of Luang Ting. Luang Ting perhaps refined it and, and categorized it in, in a way that a uh, few other people have, but it's definitely not his... Invention. From our Instagram page, uh, we have Nandita Gupta 13 wrote, Sifu Alex, you studied other martial arts and now practice Wing Chun. For someone doing Wing Chun who is curious about other martial arts, what are your thoughts on learning about other arts? Well, this is a topic I could easily do an entire show on because. uh, the idea of cross-training and its relative value, when you should do it, why you should do it, is it's not something that's easily answered in any kind of soundbite. And certainly the path that one person takes doesn't necessarily need to be the same path that you take. So I am I always have to be a little bit cautious with this kind of stuff because, um, first of all, when, when anybody decides to practice any kind of martial art, nowadays especially with the internet and social media we're constantly being bombarded with all sorts of imagery from you know all sorts of other things that we could be occupying our time with so if you are doing martial arts and you're liking a lot of martial arts stuff on facebook then you are also seeing a lot of videos and a lot of things that are just kind of coming into your feed that, uh, you know, give you the impression that, oh, look, well, you could also do this. And you could also do this. And well, what about kickboxing? What about karate? And what about jujitsu? And what about this? And so it's really easy to be distracted by these things. And often what we um, admire in martial artists, regardless of the style, is the confidence they have to do that style and to be really good at something. And it's really easy to Uh, Look at somebody who is very accomplished in another martial arts style that's not ours and confuse that level of security and that level of confidence with a lack of security and confidence in where we are at in our own martial art. And uh, again, it's the perennial problem of social media. It's that you are comparing your internal struggle to the highlight reel of other people. So it's easy to sometimes think if you see somebody, let's say, who is doing um, karate and they just look hardcore and they got these amazing kicks and they're doing all this stuff. And you go, wow, I I can't kick that way and I I can't punch that way. And I don't know how to do that. And, And then that somehow become a catalyst for you to lose confidence in the thing that you're doing. And, uh, and again I'm, I'm not actually saying that that's the case here I'm just uh, I've been teaching for 15 years and I, I get a lot of very similar questions and I I realize that it's not always the case that people ask for the same reasons but I, I tend to have a feeling that a lot of times people will tend to look at you know highlight reels of other martial arts and confuse that with their own incompetence or their lack of uh, achievement in their current martial art and think oh maybe I should do what that person is doing, because then I could be doing that, not realizing that they're also highlight reels of people who are doing the very same martial art that you yourself are practicing. Uh, in in this case, I would assume that's Wing Chun. So, the reason why other people get to do things like these amazing highlight reel videos, or they get to show off how great they are, is because they have really internalized and practiced their martial arts seriously. It's not easy to get good at anything when you have uh, one foot in the door and one foot out the door it's like yeah I really want to get good at Wing Chun but I would really also like to do boxing and I would really also like to do this and I would really also like to do that and what ends up happening is you get this really scattered focus where instead of really focusing on getting good at one thing you try to plug that up by doing a bunch of things and not really achieving anything and so uh, when I came to Wing Chun I had Done seven years of Taekwondo. I had a black belt. I uh, also done a few other martial arts here and there. And while I was doing Wing Chun, I I did test out some other things, but Wing Chun was always the thing that I really liked. In this late stage of my career, um, I do train weekly with a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu expert because I want to make sure that the. Anti grappling and the anti takedown stuff that I teach my students is really relevant to what people are actually doing. So I, I um, train with one of the best guys in New York, and I do that once a week. I also regularly train in boxing to, you know, get some ideas in terms of how to improve the uh, training methods and, and uh, teaching methods that I, I do in Wing Chun, and to make sure that students are aware of the kind of things that can happen when we practice against other martial arts. And I do that as kind of a research for the program that I teach in Wing Chun because I'm constantly refining it. Um, and I am I feel able to do that because I've been doing Wing Chun for 22 years and I feel very confident in the Wing Chun that I'm doing. And and uh, I, I know that um, when I practice these other things, I'm looking at it with a sense of finding what's in common and also how I can improve the way Wing Chun is taught. A lot of people practice other martial arts in this kind of buffet line way where it's like, okay, I'm going to do wing, wing Chun, and then I'm going to do boxing, and then I'm going to do uh, jujitsu, and then I'm going to do uh, kickboxing, and in hoping that by accumulating all of this knowledge, they're somehow going to solve the riddle of personal protection or, or dealing with violence. And All the different martial arts approach this topic a little bit differently and it's difficult to say which one is better than the other Uh, people essentially have to find the right one for them if you look at most people who are wrestlers and you look at the kind of body type that they have the mentality they have you know good luck convincing a wrestler that he would be better suited doing Krav Maga or would be better suited doing uh, Muay Thai kickboxing because wrestling suits their mentality, suits their personality. Uh, Same thing with somebody who would do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Probably doesn't want to hear anything about the healing benefits of Tai Chi. (laughs) Or uh, somebody who is just really into Muay Thai kickboxing is probably not that interested in learning gun disarms from uh, self-defense experts. So um, people are generally attracted to the martial arts that suit their mentality, suit their temperament, suit their body type. And regardless of what that martial art is, when you find the right one, you'll know it. And when you're practicing your martial art of choice, you need to really practice it wholeheartedly and, and get really serious about study. Um, not just practicing in the class, but practicing at home, reading books about it, reading you know tutorials online about it, finding everything you can about, just essentially becoming obsessed so that you really know that you are getting as much as you can from this martial art as you possibly could. And not just trying to view it as a product that you are hoping to get all the great benefits from but with no more um, dedication than a spectator in the stands at a baseball game. And because if that's the way we look at our martial arts, we're no better served doing three other ones uh, if we're just gonna kind of sit as a spectator and hoping that by virtue of wearing a jujitsu gi, we are now suddenly going to figure everything out or by virtue of uh, putting on Muay Thai shir- shorts, we are now going to understand everything we need to know about fighting or by joining a Wing Chun school and putting on a Wing Chun shirt, now we know everything we're going to need to know. Um, your martial art, regardless of choice, is going to become a lifestyle if you want it to be internalized and that is regardless of which one you pick and it, I would suggest that one would really try to uh, get into their martial art deeply and thoroughly before easily making the kind of buffet style choice of going, mm, but what's going on over here? And having a very scattered focus because there's a difference between having an open mind and having an unfocused one or an undisciplined one. And there's a way to approach multi-discipline training in a very focused and disciplined way and there's a way to do it in a very undisciplined way where we're treating it as if it were just a buffet Christian rebelos wrote into our uh facebook page uh, what are some eye-opening moments that you had throughout learning wing chun and do you still have these moments nowadays um yeah well actually wing chun like any other martial art i think it's it's, it's a process so the more you practice, the more you're going to learn, the more you're going to internalize. Um, these days, um, I still have um, eye-opening moments or aha moments when I'm practicing, especially when I'm comparing some of the movement ideas in Wing Chun to some of the other styles and realizing how uh, linked we are to the most common ideas that you would find in pretty much any martial art. And that still happens definitely through training, but I think some of my most eye-opening moments these days come through teaching. because I've now been teaching for over 15 years and I've had the chance to teach so many different people from so many different backgrounds that I'm still learning. I learn a lot from my students, um, not just in terms of how they take the material and learning to uh, teach to different learning types, but, I mean, my students also teach me a lot too. And, and so um, I'm really grateful for having that opportunity to to, to do it on such a, a large scale and, and really learn from uh, my students as I would... Um, you know, from another martial arts master. Well, I had a really fantastic time doing this AMA. I hope you guys really liked it. I look forward to doing more of these in the future. Like I said, at the top of the show, uh, we're going to be doing one with Sean. Um, Next, So uh, look forward for that post. You guys can write in all the questions you have for Big Sean to answer on his AMA. And if this is a format that you guys really like, we're super happy to do this uh, regularly. This will be um, part of the supporters only content uh, moving forward in the future. So this first AMA is free for all you guys. um, And if you guys enjoy it, then um, in the future, you'll need to support the podcast to listen to this. But um, support is even just a few dollars a month. And this is just to let us know you appreciate what we're doing. And we're more than happy to deliver this extra content for you guys. Hope you enjoyed it and uh, we'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. Please help get the word out there by sharing this and other episodes on your favorite social media platforms. If you're enjoying the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast, there are many ways in which you can support it. Go to dudesofkungfu.com support to find out how you can help your favorite Kung Fu podcast. We're currently using Patreon to automate great benefits to those who support the show. As a supporter of The Dudes, you'll get early access to episodes, as well as a number of other benefits based on your donation level. This includes in-depth topic lectures and even monthly live video conferences with The Dudes. Again, go to dudesofkungfu.com support to find out more about that. As always, you can support us in small ways as well. Give us a like at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page and share links to episodes. If Twitter is your preferred social media outlet, you can follow the Dudes of Kung Fu there as well. Both Big Sean Madigan and yours truly are on Twitter too. Dudes of Kung Fu is also now on Instagram, so please tag it along with the hashtag Dudes of Kung Fu whenever you post something related to the podcast. A great way to support the Dudes is to rate it and review it on either the iTunes or Android app stores. The written reviews are immensely more helpful than just giving us a five-star rating. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please write us at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page. Please understand that neither Sean nor I can guarantee a response, but we will consider any serious suggestions. And finally, I ask that you help spread an open dialogue with other practitioners of martial arts. Chinese Kung Fu in particular has long since suffered from caustic political discourse, which can only change with you. Remember, the person that you wholeheartedly disagree with doesn't love martial arts any less than you do. Take care and thank you for supporting the Dudes of Kung Fu!